Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, I spoke to Daisy Christodoulou. Daisy is a former English teacher and the former head of assessment at ARC School. Daisy now works for No More Marking, an online engine to help teachers with comparative judgment assessments. Daisy is the author of three books, The Wonderful Seven Myths About Education, The Superb Making Good Progress, and the Simply Sublime new book, which is the subject of today's conversation, Teachers vs. Tech, The Case for an EdTech Revolution. Now, this is Daisy's second and a half appearance on the show. She was first back on in 2017 for a full-blown episode and then made a cameo a year later in a special episode about comparative judgment. I absolutely loved both of those episodes, but you know what? I think I might love this one even more. In a wide-ranging conversation, we discussed the following things and plenty more besides. What has Daisy been up to since we last spoke? And I'll tell you what, there's a fair bit going on there. How does Daisy view the seven myths of education she wrote about in 2013, seven years later? Have things improved? Why are we both a little bit annoyed by the author of Sapiens? And then we delve into all things edtech. What is it good for? What are its limitations? What do all those buzzwords like personalised learning and AI really mean? And how do we deal with equity issues? Finally, Daisy reflects on how her views about Ofsted have changed in the last few years. Now, I don't want to build this up too much, but this is a cracker of a conversation. Daisy is one of education's great thinkers and has a rare ability to articulate her thoughts so clearly that even I can follow what she's saying. And it left me with plenty to reflect upon in the takeaway at the end of the episode. Two plugs before we start. Now, it is getting to that time of year where exams are on the horizon. Can you believe it's come round so quickly? Why not help your GCSE students prepare for their maths exam with our completely free GCSE revision collections on diagnostic questions and ED. Now, these consist of mixed topic revision quizzes covering the whole of the GCSE specification, both higher and foundation, with the added advantage that they are automatically marked for you, flagging up not just areas of weakness, but, and this for me is the real power of diagnostic questions, the likely misconceptions that underpin these areas of weakness. These quizzes can be used in class, set as individual quizzes for homework, or, and this is the best, used as a revision scheme of work on ED. Now, to find out more, you can simply click the link in the show notes or send an email to my very well-informed colleagues at hello at ed.co.uk. That's hello at ed, ed spelled E-E-D-I dot co dot uk. 
And my second plug, dead quick, my new book, Reflect, Expect, Check, Explain, is out now. It is my potentially controversial look at how to use carefully varied sequences of questions and examples in the classroom to enable our students to think mathematically. Now, the book also features an epic 40,000 word chapter on how the core ideas from my first book, How I Wish I Taught Maths, have developed in the two years since the book's release. Reflect, Expect, Check, Explain is available from all good and all evil bookstores. Anyway, without further ado, you must be thinking, just shut up, Craig. Let's get on to the good stuff. Well, let me introduce Daisy Christodoulou. Now, as a warning, we go off on a little tangent and discuss the Bayes theorem in quite a lot of detail. So if you're not a fan of stats, feel free to skip that bit. And yes, Mark McCourt, I'm talking to you. Anyway, I really hope you enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Daisy. Well, first off, welcome back to the podcast. Do you know it was April 2017 when you were on here last? So is everything good with you? Yeah, really good. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for having me on again. Oh, no, it's always a pleasure. Now, listen, <laughs> I've been keeping keeping an eye on you, what you've been getting up to. And there's been a few big developments in your life that I just wanted to get out of the way early on since we last spoke. So first off, I'm speaking to royalty essentially now on the show. Here. <laughs> this, is, this is Daisy Christoulou, MBE. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I got an MBE in the um, the New Year's Honours list. That I mean, that that's an incredible honour, right? You must have been dead happy. Yeah, I was. Yeah, it was really um, it was really really exciting. Yeah, a bit surreal, but yeah, absolutely brilliant. Really really happy about it. Are there any perks to that? Do you get anything special? Um, gosh, I should go and have, have a look and and, and uh, uh, you know see what it is. But um, obviously, like the thing I'm really looking forward to is um, the trip to trip to the palace. That's nice. the uh, that's the biggest perk. So yeah. I'll, yeah. tell you, I'll tell you one thing I was thinking, though, like you've, you, you're you a one person who doesn't need any extra letters after their name. You've got an incredibly <laughs> long name anyway. Like you need to dish those out to us, those of us with shorter names. But I'll. Uh... That's true. Yeah. Um, I hadn't. I hadn't. Uh, yeah. I hadn't, hadn't thought about that. But no, that's, that's definitely true. And then the other thing is now, um, I think you kind of maybe were, were thinking about this when we last when we last spoke. But you've actually gone and done it. And you, you ran, ran, ran a marathon, right? London Marathon, was it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I did it in uh, 2019. So just nearly a year ago now. Um, and that was amazing. A really great experience. Really glad I did it. It's my first marathon. I think it may well be my last marathon too. <laughs> but um, definitely, yeah, I ticked that one off the bucket list. The, the thing that puts me off that, because I, I love a run, but the, the, yeah. the training would absolutely do my head in. Is, is it as painful yeah. as people say? Yeah, it's not. I don't think it's necessarily the painfulness of it. It's um, like if you run a hard, hard 5K, that's painful. I think it's just the relentlessness mm. and if the time, the time is the reason I'm saying I'm probably not going to do another one is it just takes over your life. Yes. Um, and the, the couple of weeks before it, well, no, no, not a couple of weeks before, but you know, you peak like a couple of weeks before and the couple of weeks before that, there was some crazy kind of two, three week period where, uh, you know, I, I ran God knows how many miles in, <laughs> in, in, in just a, a couple of weeks. And, all you're doing really you feel like is is kind of eat sleep work run so i think it's it's quite hard on the 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 other people in your life yes and on your on your other commitments in life so I, i'm really glad i did it but it's a big commitment and i'd imagine um kind of psychologically that that because that, that's the thing i find about running that 5k i'm fine but even when i do start doing 10k after about 7 or 8k my, my, my brain starts saying what are you doing here just stop you can mm. make everything so much better just by stopping you'll feel so much better just have a rest like psychologically 
how do you, how do you get through you know 26 miles yeah so the, the the really long runs it kind of varies i think the marathon itself there's so much adrenaline and yes. there's all the support on the race so that kind of helps with it I, I i scheduled to do three 20 milers before beforehand and um i think two of those i was i was actually okay with and then one of them i was just i've been running a lot i was very very tired you know i'd had a lot of miles in my legs already and it was really really tough and I did in the end have to like stop and start a little bit on that one. It was just so difficult. And actually, I think that was the last of the three. Um, so, yeah, sometimes it's the, the combination of like, yeah, your voice saying in your head, it would been so much nicer if you stopped. And then if you really are feeling tired, yes, uh, it, it's, it's, it is difficult. It is really difficult. So, yeah, I know, I know exactly what you mean. I, I, I kind of I, I don't mind like no, normally I don't mind going up to sort of 15, 20 K. I find when it really starts to kick in is probably you know, more than, more than, more than 20 K. That's when you really start to, for me, I start to feel, oh goodness, this is a long way. <laughs> uh, but up to about, up to about sort of 20 K, actually, I can quite enjoy it. And, and what I like is sometimes the first 5 K can be quite tough and then you kind of get into a rhythm and you enjoy it. The other thing that makes a big difference is the, 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 the landscape you're running and what you're seeing. So laps of the park do get a bit soul destroying, yes. but I did a lot of running along the River Thames, nice. which is, is really nice. Um, and if you're living in London like I am, it's quite hard to get really places where you can run traffic free. Um, but the Thames was was really good, and it would it would you know it would it was always changing, always perks you up. So so that was was nice as well. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Like the psychological part of it is massive. <laughs> Fantastic, super. And, and the other thing I just wanted to mention as well is you, you're not content with conquering the world of education. You're now moving into the world of VAR. Like I, my, my favorite podcast episode of the year was that one that you were on, on the, um, on the, on the cricket one. It's absolutely fantastic. Well, where's this come? Did it all start from that, that tweet you sent at the West Ham game? Cause that, yeah. blew, that blew up, didn't it? <laughs> it did blow up. Yeah. I was quite surprised by what an appetite there was for a tweet comparing bar and German biblical high criticism. <laughs> you never know with Twitter, do you? Um, so, yeah, look, I've been thinking about a lot. I mean, I'm a big football fan um, and I played a lot as a kid as well. And I've, I've been thinking about VAR for, for a while, really. And um, not just VAR, I, I, I'm a big cricket fan. So I've been thinking about DRS for a long time. And funny enough, I think when I first started working for No More Marking, uh, Chris, our founder, he's a, he's a big sports fan too. And we were talking about human judgment in the context of that. And I think very early on, like when I, when I met him, I, I sent him... Uh, I sent him a, an article about the worst ever kind of uh, cricket on field DRS and human judgment and umpiring decision combined. So it's something where I've been interested in for a long time. And it, it genuinely does overlap a lot with what we do at No More Marking because it's all about decision making. Um, and, the, you know, the research, the literature on decision making is, is fascinating. And I guess what's really interesting about sport is it's just a really intuitive and easy way to just see it uh, in, 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 a, in, a, in an easy to understand context. So, yeah, I've been interested in, in, in DRS in particular and, and, and VAR for, for, for a long time. Um, and so that tweet, that thread was the, the product of like a lot of a lot of thinking about 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 the issues surrounding it. Fantastic. And I'll put a link to the podcast because genuinely it was absolutely fascinating. I, I love it. Um, <laughs> I liked it, yeah. it's, it's interesting, isn't it, as well? Just, just a, on a little side note, Twitter's amazing, isn't it, right? Because I don't know about you, but I get annoyed sometimes. So I'll, I'll write a sequence of like maths questions that I'm dead proud of. I'll put that on Twitter and it'll get like 40 likes or something. I post a stupid picture of my son, like dropping a dummy or something, and it, it's blowing up out of control. I think, well, what is going on here? Oh, were you a bit annoyed that it was? Because that must be your most popular 
tweet ever, was it? Would you... Oh, by like a long, long way. Nothing else I've tweeted ever come close. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? You never know what's I've been, going on. I've been spot. I mean, I'm, I'm at education events now, and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not the woman who wrote Seven Myths. People write to me, oh, you tweet that tweet about VAR, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. You just don't know with Twitter. But then there's some ways that's the kind of fun thing about it is that you put things out there and who who knows what people like. But obviously football is a, a, a crazy popular sport, so you know, yeah. That's right. And then um, just in case we don't get to speak uh, about it specifically, I'm sure we'll mention it in passing in the, in the conversation. Just give us an update about no more marking and comparative judgment in general, because we, we spoke about it at the end of, of the last episode and how it was you, 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 you'd moved there. But it was in the early days of, of you, you being full time and, and, and that being your main focus. And we talked about its potential applications in, in mathematics. But well, just give us a bit of an update. What's been going on in the last, well, two and a half, well, nearly three years now since we, since we last spoke? Yeah, absolutely. So it's been really exciting. We've done tons of stuff. Really, really good. Um, and a lot of what we do now is we do a lot on writing assessment. So I think the big the big projects we've run are assessing primary writing and assessing GCSE English. And primary writing is a project where I think last academic year we assessed about 150,000 primary age uh, pupils. I think this year we may well push up to about a quarter of a million. Wow. Um Sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm kidding. It really is that big. <laughs> that is huge. I said quarter of a million and I went, no, that can't be right. No, no, I think, I think we will. We will. We may not get quite to 250,000, but, we, uh, uh, you know, we'll be in the sort of above, above 200,000. So, um, yeah, that's that's really exciting. We're a GCSE English project as well. And what we do is we work with schools. What we do is, is low stakes. It's schools choosing to take part in these assessments and so they're using comparative judgment, not just within their school context, but they're taking part in these bigger projects. And the way we set them up is that when they're judging their scripts on screen, 80 percent of the judgments they do, they're looking at children from their school. But every fifth judgment they see, they will be seeing scripts from other schools. Mm. Every fifth judgment they make, they will be seeing scripts from from other schools. So um, what's really amazing about that is it's. It gives them an insight into what's happening in other schools. Yes. It allows us to standardise everything nationally, to standardise everything across the country. And it allows us to give people really robust, nationally standardised results for something, for writing, which traditionally has been really hard to, to get those for. So there's been a real, real appetite for it, which is really exciting. And yeah, when I think we were, I was talking to you three years ago, I think barely any of that existed. Um, and now we're, we're, we're doing that. So it's, it's really exciting. And, and th- this, is, yeah. this is the worst question in the world, Daisy, because uh, you can't really say no to this. But um, are, are you as convinced by comparative judgment as, as you were back <laughs> then in terms of its strength? Uh, as, have you spotted anything that it does better than you <laughs> thought it would or and anything that perhaps it does worse? Yeah, great question. So I'm obviously going to say, yeah, it's brilliant. No, no, no. Um, it is interesting because, yeah, we're working on it for three years now and I feel like I know the, the ins and outs. Obviously, I like live it day to day. And yeah, I'm, I personally am still obsessed with it. The first time I saw it in action, I thought it was just so beautifully simple and powerful. And I still think that now. And I still feel really privileged and lucky that I get to just work on it all the time because it is an amazing tool, an amazing technique. Um I think probably I'm, I'm guessing when I spoke to you three years ago, I, th- I think from early on that the three benefits we talked about, and the three benefits I always felt were there were reliability, efficiency, validity. Mm. Those are the three things that I, I tend to talk about. So it's very accurate. It's very quick. Um, but then it, I guess it's it's this third one, the validity uh, thing, where I guess um, is is the one where perhaps it's, it's my, maybe the most interesting and the one where um, what I always say is you've got, the gains of reliability, efficiency, validity. I always say to people, you will, if you start using comparative judgment, 
you will get the reliability and efficiency straight away. Those yes. are quick wins. You'll start using it. It'll be quicker. <laughs> it'll be more accurate. But then there's this whole other set of benefits, which we kind of term under that we put under the heading of validity, but it includes a lot of different things. It includes things like what impact does this have on what you do in the classroom? It includes things like uh, how does this help students understand what they have to do to get to, to get better at writing? It includes things like how do we know what makes good writing as, as teachers and, and um, as educators? Um, so how do we know that, 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 that we're assessing the right thing? And so if I'm saying what are the things we've kind of developed most or what are the things that I've, I've developed since I spoke to you last, I guess they would be all under that bracket. And those are the things I say to schools. Uh, they're not the medium term. They're not the short term wins. They're like medium to long term wins mm. because they involve you thinking about 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 writing and thinking about teaching. And I would say from from my perspective, the great thing about the sheer amount of writing we get is the insights we can get into what makes good writing. I think there's a couple of insights we've got, which are probably not particularly, particularly shocking or surprising. But what are the things that are kind of really decisive in making good writing? And it's sentence structure and vocabulary. Those tend to be the two things that really leap out as being really important. But then you get into interesting ways about how you can improve the sentence structure, improve the writing. Um, what's also interesting is hundreds of thousands of pieces of kids writing when you start to see the same patterns recurring and you start to see the same the same issues. So the, the latest training session I've developed just in the last year to 18 months, I call it like comparative judgment 2.0 training session. Nice. And it's all on it, using comparative judgment to improve writing. So it's kind of trying to take the insights from all of this writing with goal of these assessments and say, right, how do, how do you use this to improve writing? And also combining it with whole class feedback. I think whole class feedback is amazing. I'm a big fan of it. We didn't invent it, but we've really kind of bound that together with 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 what we do. Um, you'll notice from everything I'm saying that we're focusing a lot on writing. Yes. I think when I spoke to you last, we, we you know, we, we, we still do maths. And there, there is I think I said to you then all the ways you can use it for maths. Um, you still can use it for maths. I mean, the other thing I'll say about our comparative judgment engine is it is free to use. So we have these national projects that you, you know, schools pay to take part in, but the engine itself is free to use. So if schools, if a teacher has a broad idea about how they want to use it, they can upload some scripts and use it. And we certainly still do have maths teachers using it in that way and, 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 and coming up with ways in which, um, you know, they can use the same approach of, of that I'm talking about of the, not just the reliability and the efficiency, but thinking more deeply uh, about how this is going to improve their math teaching, improve uh, their students' understanding of maths. So, yeah, I'd say in terms of how we've developed it in the last last couple of years, in terms of my thinking and how it's changed, it's probably all to do with that, that third bucket of um, in, in improving, in, improving the way you teach and improving the students' performance. Fantastic. And, and if listeners want to find out more, is, is No More Marking the best place to go? Just... Yeah, nomoremarking.com. Yeah, and you can you can set up a free account there, and as I say, you can you can start judging if you're interested. Fantastic, superb. Right. Well, just before we turn our attention to your your brand new book, um, I just want to go back and just just remind people that you are the lady who wrote Seven Myths, not just the lady <laughs> who tweets about VAR. For... <laughs> um, so yeah. tw- twenty, I was looking this up this morning. Twenty thirteen, Seven Myths came out. Yeah. So that is well, seven years ago at the time of recording. <laughs> um, and again, a lot's changed in the education landscape since then. Um, I, I, th- I, I think personally, teachers are a lot more research aware, a lot more sceptical, have, have a lot more tools and, and references up their sleeve to question things that perhaps they, they didn't before. I, I certainly feel that. So I wonder, just in your experience of visiting schools, speaking to teachers, which of your seven myths would you say are, are the least prevalent these days? Which, 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 what's changed for the better in terms of the things you wrote yeah. about? 
So I think that within education, things have really changed for the better. And I think that there is just now so much more openness to debate, openness to new ideas. A lot of the research is better known. I feel like within schools, the, the, the landscape's totally shifted from 2013. I feel like some of the things I said in 2013, I got real hostility for. And now I feel like you can say those things. And <laughs> what, what like? Even if people disagree, they're willing to listen and have a discussion, have a debate. What, what, were uh, some, what were some of the things that you got stick for back back in the day? I think just I, I genuinely felt back in 2012, 2013, that even talking about knowledge and facts yes. could seem, uh, you know, sharp intake of breath around. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like it was it was if you were talking about facts, you know, maybe you were a fascist. Um, <laughs> so I don't feel like that. Is, I feel like education is really there's been a real shift. I think, though, that what's interesting is I think there's been that shift within education and within schools. I don't necessarily think, though, that the wider kind of debate and the, the wider educational context and the wider context in society and also outside the UK, that things have shifted as much. So. If you're saying to me, like, which myths are more or less prevalent, I feel like they're all less prevalent within within maybe English schools and within the English debate. I feel like they, a lot of them are still quite prevalent in op-eds of newspapers. Yes. I feel like a lot of them are quite prevalent in across the US. <laughs> yes, yes. I feel like, so I, I feel like what we, in some senses, we, we, we have genuinely have made a lot of progress, but it's in maybe quite a limited sphere. And so when I was researching for this current book, I was coming back again so that you can't you can't just Google it. So that was one of my myths in seven myths that you can't always just look it up. But what's interesting is you look at the big US tech firms and they're all saying, yeah, of course, you can just Google it. <laughs> so I feel like things have changed a lot, but in a, in a, in a, in a kind of limited, maybe in just a, a sort of limited context. That's... Whereas beyond that, the, the, the myths are still out there alive and kicking, sadly. That's interesting. I mean, it, you, you must get like me, well, even more so, you must get annoyed when you see these um, op-eds in newspapers, mm. high-profile people yeah. in other work, yeah. walks of life, yeah. giving big advice about how to improve yeah. education and stuff. Yeah. I mean, are you over that now? Did, did, does, it still, does it still annoy you? What, how, yeah, how, I mean, how do you react? It's, you know, you've, you've absolutely put your finger on it. It's a, it's a huge issue. So I think the last three or three of the last few non-fiction books I've read They've consisted of maybe five or six chapters of really well thought out, researched arguments on the author specialism. And then a chapter on education, which just, <laughs> <Yeah>. like <laughs> pulled some stuff out of the out of thin air. You know? And I'm not going to name names, right? But you just think, why? And, and some of these books, they're good books by yes. people I really like and respect. So it's not that I'm, I'm trying to, to have a go at people. And I just think. What is it about education that people just feel like I'm entitled to have an opinion without even checking yes. that there might be some research out there or checking or maybe even just asking yes. <laughs> if you know anything about this to someone who might know about it? Um, and yeah, like these ideas about you can just look it up and just this lazy idea of old creativity. They're going to, you know, you've got to teach creativity, just so, so many transferable skills. <laughs> what I find, there's so many lazy buzzwords that still just do the rounds. And I feel like that, 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 Teachers and educators are, are much more more critical than, than a few years ago, but the, the the general sort of yeah wider debate and as you say you know the the, the newspaper op eds you still get that. But 
yeah, in terms of, look, if you're going to spend your life getting wound up by it, I guess, you know, where's it going to leave you? So and now and again, I get you get a little, you know, free sign of, of, of annoyance. But, you know, then I just go off and think about the offside law. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I'll tell you what does. I'll tell you what does my head in Daisy, and feel free to not comment on this whatsoever. But some of my favourite authors, um, yeah. I, I can't think of them in the same way anymore because yeah. I either hear yeah. what they say about education or read it. So I, I'm going to name one name, for example. Go on, so, go on. so the guy who wrote Sapiens, right? One of my one of my all time <laughs> favourite. He was the one I wasn't mentioning. All right. <laughs> So Sapiens yeah. is one of my all-time favourite books. Yeah. I absolutely adore that book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And then I, I read Homo Deus, and yeah. that was getting a little bit weird. Um, yeah. With some of the things he was saying, but then I heard him on a podcast, and he was talking so much <laughs> crap, Daisy. I just thought, <laughs> I just, I just wanted to say, just stick to what you know. Don't, don't branch yeah, out. Just, like it's a big yeah. enough, it's a big enough topic to think about, like yeah. human evolution. Let's just deal with that first <laughs> yeah. before. Yeah. And, and I can't think of him in the same way anymore. It annoys absolutely. me. Absolutely. Yeah. I know. Look, I know exactly where you're coming from and, and, and actually that I've got a bonus chapter in, in, uh, in my book so it's not in the final book but it's uh, kind of a, a you can get it if you pre-order it and I actually take on Yuval Noah Harari and his arguments because nice. it's not just that podcast you talk about he's he's written about them extensively and his stuff yeah I'm really sad to say I like you I, I like a lot of his work I think he's, he's done loads of good stuff but the stuff he's written on education it's just like cliches and buzzwords strung together and it's a real shame it is a real shame because people listen to him he's really well respected he's got a huge following and I, like i say it's a real shame that you just think if he if he'd only taken the time to look at what some of the things that are out there um you know how good how good that would have been so i've got a whole chapter where i talk about some of the flaws in in his arguments and other people making similar arguments but I know what you mean. And the other thing I find when you find prominent authors who who you realize they're just completely not, um, you know, not 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 doing the research and education. It does make you doubt a lot of the other things. they Yeah, write. yeah, absolutely. Because you think to yourself, well, this is the area I know and I yes. know you haven't done the research on this. Uh, and it's not even just about being wrong. It's about you're not even you're being lazy, yes. you know. And then it makes you doubt everything else they write. Because you think, well, what about all the things that I don't know as much about? that you're writing about with great confidence. Yes. How do I know you're right on that? Um, and, and to be fair, like it's look, I write generalist things and it is a risk for anybody who writes generalist things. I understand is that when you write things about research that you're interpreting for others, it, I, I do it myself and it's a huge responsibility to get things right. And you are writing about things which you have, you know, more or less kind of really great understanding of. But I just feel in some cases it is just so egregious. It's just mm. so obvious that people don't even seem to have attempted to do it. And I, I think it's partly that, education maybe it's the, the it's just not held in that wide esteem is it really you know you yeah. won't get people you're not going to get people who are saying well here's what we should do here's my random chapter on healthcare that i'm going to throw in at the end of my book yeah uh, you don't get people telling doctors actually this is the way you do heart surgery so i think part of it is is to do with that and uh, no i, I you, you've said that one and, and i would agree with that and there's other that there too and as i say it's a shame it's authors i like and respect and admire but um that the research isn't there but I, i'm hopeful look if we keep plugging away uh, and we keep we keep pushing out there what you know what the evidence says that 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 we can we can get that evidence out there and get it better known so as i say it's yeah it's easy to get angry and wound up about these things but we just have to do what we have to do to to get people to to know more about this research yeah yeah it's it's fascinating isn't it i i think it's I think why why people attempted to write about education who know very little about it is because, mm. 
like everyone's been to school for one so you've got yeah. that experience and then lots of people have kids who are, yeah. who are in school and <laughs> so you're looking yeah. back on your own education through yeah. kind of distorted glasses anyway and then you're getting secondhand information from from kids coming home or they made us do this and so on and so forth mm -hmm. and so you just you just give it a go and write about it and what's annoying for me is and maybe this is just like um, a difference in personality but I couldn't write with that confidence and that mm -hmm. almost almost arrogance to, to start yeah. proclaiming yeah. all this stuff but anyway I'm getting wound up now David, so we're, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna move on we're gonna move yeah. on yeah. Uh, right okay so I, I, I want to talk I want to I want to talk about your new book um, it's, uh, and pe people wind me up on this this podcast because they say I, I'm always I always always lavish lavish praise on people who come on with books but the reason for that is it's only I only have people on whose books I like so I absolutely I absolutely <laughs> love your book and yeah. we're gonna go we're gonna go deep right. into it um but why first off why why add ed tech as a subject days is it something that's always interested you was this always on the agenda for you to write about i think yeah i've always been interested in it but i think it was working for no more marking that really got me more interested in it because what we do is about technology what we do couldn't exist without without modern technology so and that got me thinking thinking more about things you can do with technology that you couldn't have done without without so What's fascinating about comparative judgment is the algorithm behind it was developed in the 1920s. It's not new. What's new is the ability to be able to crunch all the calculations really rapidly mm. that, that makes it practical to be able to actually use it. So for me, that was just really striking. The idea that you can have an idea that's relatively old, been around for a while, but developments in technology just give it this new lease of life and make it really practical in a way that just wasn't possible before. So that was what really got me got me thinking about it. And then just, I guess, being being in this world a bit more, talking to people who who, who work in technology and that that's their their life um, of, of just yeah speaking and thinking about it a bit more. So, yeah, it's probably been mostly the last last couple of years, really. And then the other thing that's also made me think about it more is that so much of so there are so many edtech applications, I think, which are and this is one of the, the themes of the book, which are founded on on really poor research and poor science. And again, that's really striking for me that technology is so cutting edge. It's almost by definition, you know, it's focused on it's, it's got to be, be using the latest research and it's got to work. <laughs> and yet so often in education, it's married with approaches that really don't work. So I, I, what I found interesting is that I met a lot of people who were kind of ed tech, ed tech skeptics and really pro ed tech. And I couldn't put myself in either of those camps. Like I didn't feel like I was one of these people who wanted to go around saying, yeah, you know, um, iPads for every kid's going to save the world <laughs> but neither did I want to be on the side of saying just get rid of all the computers we just go back to do it with pen and paper you know that's 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 it we don't need any change I genuinely felt felt that there was a different different position and, and I didn't also feel that that position was necessarily being articulated anywhere so that's kind of where the impulse for writing the book came from all, all of those, those things and can I just ask Daisy what, what year did you start teaching yeah, so I started teaching in 2007. And actually, if you're talking about when I started teaching and, and technology, mm. I've actually got a diagram at the start of the book. So I left school in 2003. I did a gap year, went to uni, and then started teaching in 07. And I've got a, and, and, and when I, and this is how, my anecdote experience was, I, I left school and I'd never seen, not just never seen an interactive whiteboard, I'd never seen even a projector at the front of the class, yep. right? Yep. Like most of, and I, most of the, the lessons I did in class, it was a, a, we had blackboards when I started and then whiteboards. Yes, me too. Uh, that, you know, that you wrote on with a, with a pen. And I then felt like I started teaching and there were interactive whiteboards everywhere. And, and it was only four years. And actually, when I went back and looked at the data, that anecdotal experience, that's all true. 
Like, it's not me exaggerating. Yes. <laughs> and I've got a graph at the very beginning of the book where I show, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it is something like in 2004, there were 0.1 whiteboards per English classroom or something. And by 2007, there were like, you know, 10 million or whatever. Yes, <laughs> and I'm exaggerating, yes. but the graph is in the book, the, the data is in the book. But the, the, the data does show that by, you know, between 04 and 07 or 03 and 07, there was this very dramatic uptake in interactive whiteboards. That was when all the funding came on stream and the government initiatives behind them came on stream. So I, I guess, yeah, if I go back to when I started teaching, it was a real surprise to me to, to leave school and leave the classroom where there'd been nothing like that and to come into it. And it, and it really, you know, these, this technology was everywhere. Um, so that was a, a, real, a real difference between the way I was taught and the way the, way, the, way I, the tools I then had to teach. But the other thing is, is obviously, and I talk about whiteboards in the book, and I'm not, I'm not anti, anti whiteboards, but again, you look at all the research, what impact did they have on learning? What impact did they have on, 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 on student achievement? And it, it's limited at best. Yes. So that's another interesting one where you've got this huge investment, you really have added in all of this technology, but what's the impact being? And particularly the interactivity of the whiteboards, that's the thing that constantly is getting picked up again and again in the research that so often there were teachers, the teachers who would use the whiteboard, but without the interactivity and to the extent that they'd have the cable unplugged. Yes, so they're essentially yes. using it as a projector. <laughs> yes. Right. And, and, and in fact, I remember teachers who didn't realize you could have the interactivity. They loved it, but they loved it because it was a projector. Yes. Yes. So that's another interesting one, too. Of just you, you know, because projectors would be if you put projectors in every classroom, projectors and a, and a good screen, mm. that would be much cheaper than the, the 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 interactive whiteboards. The interactivity does add a lot, so it adds a lot in cost, but was it adding as much in value? That's the the interesting question. And I suppose, yeah, that experience, that personal experience from from early on in my teaching career, definitely got me thinking about how how do you how do you spend money and add technology to improve outcomes? And often it isn't as easy as you might think. Yeah, there's the, it's, it's interesting. Your experience is very similar to mine. I, I started teaching um, a couple of years before you, and um, <laughs> that was it was the time when all the whiteboards were being were being chucked mm -hmm. in left, right, and centre. And I was a, I was a relatively young teacher, so I was labelled as the person in the maths department to right. figure out what yeah, was going on with like these. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and um, like as far as I could grasp, after a couple of hours training, the best thing this board could do is it could draw a rectangle or a square. There was like a tool that could draw shapes, but you had to go through like so many menus to get it and if you click the mm. wrong thing it, it looked bloody ridiculous yeah. and what, what fascinates well there's, there's a few things that fascinate me about this 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 whole thing particularly if we just focus on whiteboards for now and um, they, they were so bloody expensive daisy like when you think when you think of the budget schools have got now and what was spent on those boards it's it's frightening that that's one thing um i have the similar experience to you that you had teachers who were essentially being kind of told to use these boards but with, with without the adequate training and without the research to, to, to back it up. And, and I think when, whenever I work with um, older, more experienced teachers these days and I try and talk about some kind of technology, whether it is in maths, whether it's using something like Desmos or Autograph or, or, or any, any form of tech, I, I, what I've always got to bear in mind is they've had this experience with whiteboards. I think whiteboards have got a lot to answer for, for, for mm -hmm. a whole generation of teachers who had these things flunged upon them mm -hmm. and found that not only did they not improve teaching, that they actually probably made it a lot worse. Um, so do, do you find that? Do you find that whiteboards have, have a lot to answer for in terms of the experience of, of teachers and maybe making them less um, willing to adopt better ed tech these days? 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that because I think everybody knew they were very expensive, but I think it's also people's experience often, as you say, was very top down. Yes. It was imposed on you. Um, and I, I think, I think that there's, there's, there's a couple of points. I, I think the, the thing I felt with teachers is that the part of them, the, the part of the whiteboard, as I say, that was a projector, <laughs> that was my experience. <laughs> but then when, the, the, the bit of the, the interactivity and what you got from that that was the bit where I felt yeah that 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 definitely felt quite quite top down and that what I also felt was you would have these I, I like I remember going to this training as, as as you did you would have these almost uh sort of you know demonstration lessons that would often involve children coming up to the front yes and using the using the whiteboard pen to select yes. something from something and and they would look lovely as a demo but they you never felt they were anything that was was actually going to be something you would use regularly and that would really regularly improve your teaching yes so they, they always felt like it was something that looked lovely and looked shiny but but what was it really doing to the teaching and people will always say oh well it was the training it was the implementation there should have been better training there should have been implementation and my response to that is this we hear this again and again with big hardware big hardware investments in education so whiteboards are not the only example in fact and i want to be fair about whiteboards here which is that, and I, I've got a few case studies in the book, they are by no means the worst example of an EdTech investment, far, far from it. So I don't want to go all in and like pile into whiteboards. I think that actually the, the, the program of rolling them out was relatively competent. You can make arguments about whether government schools overpaid for them, but they got into the schools. They generally worked. That schools also, as I say, I, I think in terms of using them as projectors, Yes. I think there was a high level of uptake. When you compare it to some other EdTech disasters, <laughs> you know, white, white people look brilliant by comparison. Give, give us some of the big disasters, Daisy. What's well, worse? A, a lot of them, you know, a lot of them involve tablets, one-to-one devices. These are the ones. So there's a pretty famous one from not that long ago, just a few years ago, of um, the LA Unified School District, which is the biggest school district in America, Apple and Pearson. And they had a deal to put tablets, give every kid a tablet with a preloaded curriculum on it. And it would have been, a, you know, it was one of the biggest sort of ed tech, ed tech deals in, in history. And it very, very rapidly unraveled. And the security and the, 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 the management of the iPads wasn't up to scratch. The curriculum wasn't finished. There were all kinds of issues with um, security and students managing them. It unraveled very, very quickly, and it led to, I think, quite a few people at the, the LA Unified School District losing their jobs. And there's a, a line from Wired magazine, which I quote in the book, which says something like, you know, EdTech's been promising for such a long time. It's been promising to deliver. Uh, but if the world's biggest company, <laughs> the United States' biggest school district, and the world's pretty much the world's biggest educational publisher can't get this right, is it is anyone ever going to get it right? Yes, yes. I remember reading that and thinking that's a really good question. Yes, <laughs> that yes. you've got so much resource uh, and really big organisations doing things on this, and it's it's still still not working out. The other one I talk about again, sort of less maybe less of a sort of you know disaster, but the the one laptop per child initiative, which is an initiative in the developing world, and again the way that the the, the flaws that has and the way that kind of peters out and and has its issues. So. A lot of the big issues are lots of money being invested in hardware, no one really being quite sure exactly what you're meant to do with the hardware, how it's meant to improve learning. And then when you combine that with issues around managing the hardware and, 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 and dealing with security and things like that. So, 
yeah, as I say, I, I don't want to be too too harsh on white walls because you could look at it and say in lots of ways there, there are good things about them. But if I go back to my original point about the training and implementation, mm. I think one of the things that frustrates me is when people say, oh, you know, but the, it could have worked well, but the training wasn't there. Right. And the reason that frustrates me is, well, yeah, that's true, but we've known that for a long time. We know that the training is crucial. So if you are setting up a, a big hardware project where you're buying lots of hardware for schools and you're not investing in the training, that, that's 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 a known factor. You can't then say after the event, oh, yeah, the <laughs> training had been there. Like every single but it just feels like people repeat that mistake over and over again. And my feeling is sometimes the training isn't there because actually the people designing the program often aren't clear what you're supposed to be doing with them. Like too often it does just feel like it's about getting shiny gadgets in kids' hands. So, you know, you come across that thing in, in the literature again and again, the training wasn't there. But I feel you shouldn't even start to be thinking about a big hardware pro- program until you've thought about why you're doing it and what the training would be. You that's almost have to put that up front before you do anything else. That's very, that's interesting. Um, the, the other thing that, that strikes me, and I wonder your take on this, Daisy. Um, I, I, I'm obsessed with with reading, research mm. into, into maths, and particularly um, I'm obsessed with um, Bjork's Desirable Difficulties. And, and there's lots of um, papers coming out at the moment about mm. interleaving in mathematics. And there's a fascinating paper uh, last year by, by Doug Rower. And it looked at basically... To cut a long story short, uh, two groups of kids taught the same material and were given um, homework assignments. One of them had blocked practice. One of them had the exact same questions, but the order mixed up and so on and so forth. And in a test of retention, 30 days later, the interleaved group absolutely destroyed the the, the blocked group. No no surprise there. But the reason I bring this up is in the conclusion, and it's quite rare that you see this. Well, I see this in research papers. um, the, the, The author comes down really hard on this and says, Essentially, this this costs absolutely no money to do this. It doesn't doesn't take teachers any more time because the mm-hmm. questions are still written. You just mix the order up. It doesn't cost a penny um, compared to just carrying on the, the normal way. And yet this is a pretty good bet that this works. But if you compare that to something like uh, whiteboards or iPads for every kid, there's very little research into that it's, it's going to improve. It's going to cost a lot of money and it's going to take a lot of both teachers time and kids time to, to upskill and, and, and get good at it. Um, and, and the reason I bring this up is, do, do you think, and I, I know I keep going back to whiteboards and, and you can probably cite more recent mm-hmm. examples. If we argue that we are a, a more research informed profession these days, do you think that things are going to get better in the sense that people are uh, people and I don't even know who I mean by people, but, mm-hmm. but people who make these decisions are going to be more questionable of these big, expensive projects because they know that there are other things that can be done that are cheaper, easier to implement, that have a bigger impact? Or are you still kind of sceptical that we, do, we will keep repeating the same mistakes? So I think it varies. I think and it goes back to what I was saying at the start. It varies by context. So I look at the US now and I think they are really going down that route. of I think there are a lot of big investments into hardware that are not backed up with the, the training and implementation and not focused on the other kind of interventions, like you say, of, of, of interleave practice, which would have a much bigger impact. So I, I feel a little bit I do feel a bit more optimistic about England. Because I feel there is just better research out there. And I, I felt quite reassured, too, that the previous Secretary of State for Education, Damien Hines, of interest. But most of the things he was talking about and most of the things that were were being floated then um, tended to me to be more on the, you know, less on the kind of flashy hardware end of things mm. and more on the solving the real problems that that teachers have. 
So, again, it depends on the context. Uh, I, I do feel a, a bit more optimistic about England. I think when you look globally, it's, you know, it's, it's patchier. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I, I agree. It just it just fascinates me that most of this this research into into leaving or spacing certainly matters. It comes from the US, and it's, it just amazes yeah. me that it has a bigger impact over here. And that's probably down to books like books like your own and Research Head and so on that that teachers and SLT are more, are more questioning of this. But it's amazing, isn't it, that if the research is originating in the US, it it just doesn't seem to be having that impact over there that it is over yeah, here. Yeah, I, I am routinely astonished by that. Not just on this issue, but on lots of the amount of very good research there is in the US historically um, and, and yet how little, little of it seems to be kind of picked up and really implemented at scale across their schools yeah. um, and comparative judgment as well. You know, that's a, that was a, a US professor who, who, who developed that, um, uh, you know, Edie Hirsch, Dan Willingham. And I, I've read quite a bit about the, the US for this for this for this book. And yeah, it just feels like. It does feel to me like the, it's the big tech companies who really seem to be setting the agenda there, yeah. Rather than some of this 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 research that's being produced in universities. Fascinating. All right. Well, well, let's let's look positive, Daisy. What what are some of the things that edtech, as as it as, as technology currently stands at the moment, can do really well? So things that technology can do really well. Technology can crunch large data sets really quickly and speedily and efficiently. So wherever you need to do that turn to technology and that's what we do with comparative judgment obviously uh we the, the the thing that makes comparative judgment kind of viable and workable now is computers can crunch through hundreds of thousands of calculations really quickly get you up-to-date results so that in our system they crunch together all the the, the decisions that, that that thousands of teachers will make so that's the kind of thing technology does really well other things technology does well um, in terms of the kind of human weaknesses it can overcome, uh, cover technology tends to be consistent. Mm. Whereas humans, we are we're not always consistent. We can be a little bit biased. We can also be tired and make errors. The f- reason people in all walks of life like technology is if you can get an algorithm to work, <laughs> you can then just turn the handle and it keeps working and it keeps churning out the same the kind of the same process. Whereas a human being might occasionally make better decisions than an algorithm, but they may not do it consistently. So that's the the argument for using using computers in, in lots of walks of life in terms of where it can come in in, 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 in teaching. Um, the other thing I, I talk about is one of the difficulties all humans have, not just with understanding how students learn, but understanding how you yourself learn. We've all got biases about how we learn. And we're generally where we're bad as humans is when we don't get immediate feedback. Mm. When we only get feedback, when we don't get so so with long term goals where the feedback is delayed, it's quite hard for us to 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 learn. And and why that's a problem is, is if you think, as I do, that one of the definitions of learning is a change in long term memory. You're essentially saying learning is about the long term. And even if you don't fully buy into that definition that learning is a change in long term memory, I think we can all accept that education for it to have any value at all is about what happens after you've left you know a lot of it is about what happens after you've left school yes you don't just want the benefits of education to stop the minute you leave <laughs> leave leave school so there's something long term about it but the problem is is teachers never get well very rarely get any feedback on that long term we get feedback in the moment like when a student frowns or when a student <laughs> uh you know gets an answer right we get short feedback in the medium term, you know, when they come back next week or whatever. But we very rarely get the feedback for the long term. 
Um, and I, I think the more I've been thinking about that, the more I think that is a real issue. And because, as I say, that's that's something with 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 looking at other fields like medicine and architecture. The things that often stop them being good in their early days was the lack of long term feedback and the things that help them get better. are when there's ways of getting that longer term feedback and designing uh, you know, studies and ways of research that so you can see what happens in five, 10, 15 years time. So one of the things I think where I think technology can help with that is to essentially overcome some of the biases that creep in when we mistake short term performance for long term learning. So when a student understands something fluently in the moment and we think to ourselves, right, they've got that. Technology can help to to to, to really see, firstly, have they really got it? <laughs> But also we know that you do need to, as you were saying, you need to interleave and space out practice to truly get something. And the, 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 the tool I talk about in the book, which I think is, is really good and really helpful at overcoming these kinds of biases, is a space repetition algorithms. Yes. So space repetition, kind of similar to what you were talking about with the interleaving. But the idea that to, mem- to remember something for the long term, you don't want to cram. You don't want to just cram all your study into one big block. What you would like to do is to space it out over time. But the challenge with that is this, this is another study. This is another insight, which is very robust, very well evidenced. Lots and lots of different different types of research that back it up. But it's also not particularly well implemented. Um, and I, I cite a, a study in the book saying saying most exactly that. And the reason I think one of the reasons why it's not well implemented is it, it cuts against uh, intuition and common sense. Because the thing about cramming or not cramming, but, you know, revising something so you get to the point where you really know it thoroughly is it kind of feels good. Yes. <laughs> you yes. want to get to that point where you're like, yes, I've totally got it. You know, you don't want to shut your book and finish studying until you're like, OK, I've locked it down. <laughs> but actually, that feeling of, 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 of locking it down is deceptive because you've crammed all your practice into that, that period and you're actually not getting the real value on it. It's going to drain away really quickly. So the space repetition algorithm cuts against that bias. And it also the apps that use space repetition algorithms just make it easier for you to space out practice because they will just record all the time that you've had. You've studied material. They'll record the best time for you to study it again. If you get it wrong, they'll bump it up to the front of the queue. So space repetition algorithms are a part of a lot of modern ed tech applications. So they're often in the guts of lots of different systems. The, the, there's a particular flashcard app, which I've started using, which I, I really like. It's not the only one out there by any means, but it's just one that I personally have started using. It's called Anki. Oh, we're mutual Anki lovers on this yeah, show. Exactly. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, exactly. So there you go. So Anki is very, again, like a lot of these things, very, very simple ideas, but when implemented well, can be very powerful. So it's a flashcard app with a space repetition algorithm. So suppose you want to learn 100 bits of foreign vocab, 100 foreign vocabulary words. You'd put the words in and Anki would present them to you and it would present them to you as you're getting them right. It would space out the practice more and more. So you study them the first day, then you would probably study them all the next day and then you'd study them after three days and then it would present after five days. But obviously it's more complicated than that. If you get one wrong, it will pull it up to the beginning again. So it's, it's, it's cycled back to the beginning. And then for any particular flashcard you can look at your stats on it and you can see how many times you've studied it how much time you spent studying it 
how often it's been presented, how many times you got it right, how many times you got it wrong. So you can do a bit of analysis there. But essentially, it's just making space repetition, which we've known about since the 1890s from Hans Ebbinghaus's research on this. It's making that research just easy to implement. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I mean, I think Hanky's absolutely f- flipping brilliant. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm learning American presidents, rivers of <laughs> Europe. I'm, do, I'm doing everything at the moment. But a couple, couple of questions for you on this, though. Um, often there's um, there's this perception that maths and English are very, very different, different topics, uh, different uh-huh. subjects and so on. But I, I think we've got one thing in common here, and I, I'm interested in your take on this, Daisy. Um, Chris Bolton talks about this in terms of maths, that maths has very few facts that kids mm-hmm. f- for kids to learn. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think possibly, again, I'm, I'm out of my comfort zone here, but maybe English is, is the same in, in the sense that true facts like you'd have in something like geography in terms of yeah. capital cities and, and history in terms of dates um, and, and, and um, foreign languages in terms of translations of words. So my, my instinct is that these space repetition algorithms work very, very, very well for, for learning facts. Um, do you think they've got a role to play, let, let's say, um, in, in English, English GCSE, if, if you've got a student who's really keen and committed how could they make the most use of this essentially working independently yeah so i think you make a really good point there about maths and english the actually the the analogy i always like to use i think every for every subject i think there's what i call there's a vocabulary and a grammar and the vocabulary are like the facts the the stuff you've got to learn and the grammar is kind of like the rules Mm. Um, so it's not just foreign languages that have a vocabulary and a grammar. I feel like every subject has its vocabulary and grammar, but some subjects are weighted more towards the vocab and others are weighted more towards the grammar. That's interesting. So I like that. Me, like this is just, you know, look, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just making this up, right? But <laughs> you know, I'm not telling me that. Like, there's other people, have to, but, but you know, look, it's not a hard and fast thing, but it's interesting. It's an interesting metaphor. It's a mental model to work through. So, for example, biology, you would say is quite heavy on vocabulary not so big on grammar physics you might say very heavy on grammar not so mm. big on vocabulary okay that's just roughly how you yes. might see it so if you look at maths maths is a subject that's kind of all grammar yes. you know there's not much vocabulary and the interesting thing if you want to learn vocabulary you've just got to learn stuff <laughs> mm. so you're absolutely right that anki is ideal for the learning of vocabulary in my bigger sense you know any stuff you've got to learn <laughs> you bung yes. it in anki and it will make it really easy in terms of can it help you learn the vocabulary, the, the grammar. Uh, for me, what I mean by I'm talking about grammar, that there's a grammar are the things where there's a limited set of rules. There's not very many of them. But the challenge is understanding those rules in lots and lots of different contexts. Yes. And actually using them with all the different vocabulary. Mm. Um, so that's the, the, the challenge. And so I agree with you. Anki is probably better suited to the, the vocabulary challenge. But can it help with the grammar challenge? I think it can. And in terms of how I've used it a bit, it might not be ideal, but in terms of how I've used it a bit with things like that is I've used it with some Bayes theorem examples. Oh, nice. So no, put, now I've now you're in, talking, Daisy. Yeah, no, I've, I've, so I put in the equation, the Bayes equation. I put in a few examples um, just so because Bayes is one of those things that, that I talk about with that issue with, um, you know, long term, short term forms is not long term memory. Every time I read about the, the, you know, the really simple explanation of the Bayes theorem, I read them and I go, oh, yeah, someone will walk me through the equation. I go, oh, yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. It makes sense. And then you come back to it like a month later and you're like, hang on a minute. <laughs> what was it again? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was just fed up with that, <laughs> with having this concept that you've understood. And, and it, it, a lot of these things about Anki go to the heart of the whole understanding, memorization, dichotomy. And, and, and the, 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 when someone explains something to you, particularly when they're a very good explainer, 
you feel like you know it mm. and you, you sometimes you get this illusion i sometimes think people are good explainers <laughs> obviously it's great to be good at explaining and a good explanation is in the heart of what a teacher does but sometimes there's something a little bit deceptive about about a good explanation in that you hear a really good explanation and you think, oh, wonderful, I totally understand. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and actually you don't, you don't. You have to go away. However great the explanation is, you have to go away and lock it down and you have to lock it down with the practice. And I, I think that was my issue with Bayes is that I would read about it and be like, brilliant, absolutely got it. And then actually then two, three weeks later, it's gone. And then to what extent are you able to then apply it and use it and spot examples where you might be able to use it if it's just drained away from your long term memory. So and I, I, I've known other people who have put equations into Anki. So I think it can be a good tool for, for learning equations. Um, so I, I know what you mean when you say it's good for those subjects that there's a lot of stuff. <laughs> but I, I still think for subjects where even for maths and for physics and for for science, there's, there's ways you can use it, too. And, and yeah, so your question was English, wasn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, if you're thinking particularly about English grammar, then, yeah, I think I think there are. I think, again, what I would do is I wouldn't be putting in definitions of grammatical terms. I'd be putting in examples of them. So I wouldn't be putting in a verb as a doing word. I'd be putting in, um, you know, um, the sentence sentences where you've got to highlight the verbs. Yes. And so on one side, it's a couple of sentences. On the other side, the verbs have been highlighted. So your challenge is what's the verb in these sentences. And you obviously wouldn't just want one of those. You'd want a series of examples like one would not be enough. Um, you, that's want interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so the whole notion of examples, non-examples, that that's one way. For me, the way, of teaching, the way of teaching grammar, and I'm using grammar in that broadest sense, mm. is with exemplification. So it's the same in maths, isn't it? You know, if you just put in one maths problem, well, if you put it into Anki, they'll just memorise the answer to that. And yes. then you don't know if they've learned it. Now, to be fair, there's some value in that. Like I have like a really basic Bayes theorem kind of go to exemplar which i just use as a basis of understanding it so you have the equation and then you have an equation where you've plugged in a really simple um a really simple example uh, and actually it's to do with flu 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 of the flu virus which is feels feels uh, <laughs> too appropriate at the moment um but that's a, 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 a so i quite like having one simple example that's like a go-to example but obviously you don't just want one because then you've just got bogged down and that's the only one you've got you want a lot more so you can see the the differences and how the, the the equation will work differently in different situations so, so can you just just tell me practically daisy because because this is fascinating this because yeah. i think in maths we we'd label the grammar perhaps as problem solving so it's taking yeah. these taking these basic yeah. skills that we've got taking yeah. the vocab taking yeah. our basic knowledge of of how to do methods and procedures but how do we combine them in novel less predictable yeah. ways how yeah. do we interpret contextual questions and so yeah. on um, and this sounds to me like ex exactly what you're doing with with base theorem. You, you've you've yeah. got the basic theorem, but how do you apply that in different contexts? How do you learn to solve problems? So can you just go into a bit more specifics? What what kind of things are on on these other cards that you've got within Anki? So they're all they're all uh, oh, oh, what for Bayes or for other yes things? for Bayes yeah Bayes. So they're all examples. So they're all they're all just examples that I got from a book. So I didn't make up most of them. And actually, if you want to push it even further, I should make up some of my own. So one is about like breast cancer screening, which is a classic Bayes theorem problem um as i say quite a lot like in some way about like diseases mm. uh one is about drink driving one is about um a drink driving test so lots and of them in some ways are about tests and what's it saying daisy is it like giving describing the context and then you've got to think what numbers to pick out and put in the formula what, what, what does it actually look like yeah so um 
so actually sometimes I'll just leave the answer blank and plug in the numbers mm. and the challenge is to work out the answer. Now, obviously, because they've been coming around a lot and there aren't that many in there, it's got to the point where with a few of them, I like, you know, I don't have to work it out like I know it. Yes. But actually, I don't mind that so much. I think if it was just one, that might be an issue. But because there's like a few, I don't mind it. And it's also the thing that it's got. And this is what I think goes to the heart of the memorization understanding issue is it lets you see how the more you when you do start to memorize lots of different examples, the more you start to see how all the elements of the Bayes theorem work together. So if I can give a more detailed explanation, then with, with, with Bayes theorem, what you're trying to do. Uh, let's give an example using the flu. You're trying to find out the probability that you have got the flu given you have, say, sneezed. So that's what you're trying to find out. And then the equation has three parts. So the first part is the probability of sneezing given you've got the flu. You have to know that. And then you multiply that by the probability of getting the flu. And then you divide it by the probability of sneezing. And when you play it out as an equation and you see how all those three elements interact, it just gives you some really interesting insights. So for this example, for example, let's suppose that sneezing is a non-negotiable symptom of getting the flu. So everybody who gets the flu sneezes. So the first part of the equation is the highest it can be is one. And then you're multiplying that by the second part, which is the prevalence of flu in the population. But let's say, for argument's sake, we're living in a world where the prevalence for in the population is quite low. So then when you're multiplying those first two parts of the equation, even though your first number is as high as it can be in the circumstance, it is still only one. And one multiplied by, let's say, let's say 0.1% is 0.1%. And then you've got to divide. And in this case, you're dividing by the probability of sneezing. And again, that's something we could say, well, sneezing is generally something that happens quite a lot. So let's say the probability of sneezing is going to be one or it's going to be approaching one. Well, what happens when you divide a number by one or close to one? Well, you end up with something very similar or the same as the original number. Now, obviously, this is a really unusual example, um, but it's demonstrating a, a really important sort of you know, idea with Bayes, which is that when you've got a symptom like sneezing, that's basically pretty much a non-negotiable feature of something. But when that symptom is also pretty widespread in just generally, then then actually you're better off actually just ignoring that symptom and just looking at the base rate. And the way that is just illustrated really beautifully in Bayes is it's when basically the first and the third part of the equation, uh, you can see if they're both close to one, you're better off relying on the second part of the equation, which in this case is 0.1. And obviously, sometimes the first and third part of the equation aren't one, they're different numbers. But the more scenarios you play out with actual numbers, the deeper the understanding you get of the concepts. And I think the point is I'd had the concept explained to me a lot of time with words, and I think there are useful explanations you can get with words. But when you play out several different concepts with several different numbers, you particularly just start to see how they all interact. And as I say, particularly uh, like that first and third bit, and particularly the second bit, which is essentially, uh, you know, really the base rate of whatever it is you're trying to work out. Also, the other thing that's, that's challenging with the Bayes one in particular is these are all quite stereotype problems. And actually, the flu one's an interesting one. The best ones are the kind of drink driving and breast cancer ones because you know all the information often you know all the data mm. the really mm. challenging thing with applying Bayes in real life is knowing the base rate yes um so the really challenging thing is knowing well what is the percentage of people in a society who have flu what is the percentage of of, of people whereas often with the, the 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 
you know some of the other sort of more stylized examples you know you get that um i mean we i play around with it as well with um um chris whedon who works at no for us it works at normal marketing he's a founder of normal marketing he's a big fulham fan so i've always got one going with him you know uh what's the base rate of uh, Mitrovic, of his, of his goals that are headed, you know. <laughs> we we'll play around with, yeah, the base rate of Mitrovic's goals, things like that. But it does get tricky in, in, in applying these things. And often the trickiness with, with Bayes is finding the, the real data that you would, you would, would actually want to use, um, you know, finding reliable data. But I've definitely found for that one, memorising it and thinking about it has helped me to, Help me to think about 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 Bayes in everyday life, and obviously Bayes is one of those things that that does have weird and odd applications. Um, and right, I'm yeah. talking about relatively straightforward applications. Obviously, you can get into far more um, advanced things, which I'm not even going close to. I'm just sticking with a very very basic um, application of it. Yeah, um, it but yeah, I'm, no, I'm, I'm glad you're interested in that because it's the kind of thing I'm I'm very interested in too, <laughs> and uh, uh, that's the kind of thing where I think putting these things into things like Anki can can add a lot of value. And again, I would have just loved something like if when I was at uni or school, I would have absolutely loved something like Anki. I'd have gone absolutely, absolutely mental on that. Yeah. And, I, and I think, again, the, the kind of proactive, conscientious students, it's, it's, it's a gift, isn't it? It's an absolute gift to, yeah. to, to be able to, to, to use something like this. So my question is, um, are, there, are there applications of, of this kind of whole class? Because it works very well on an individual basis, doesn't it? Because it's and we're going to get into adaptive learning and personalized <laughs> and, and all that stuff in a few minutes but um for me anki and, and spatial repetition algorithms work brilliantly once uh, on an individual basis do, do you see applications whole classes is there or, or are they more suited to to individuals yeah so I, I talk about this a bit in the book about different edtech applications and how they're designed and i think one of the things i quite like about 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 a, a lot of applications is the way that a lot i, I like applications that actually are designed to be used outside the classroom mm. because i think the minute you have something that is designed to be used by the teacher you're into a situation where you're often got to change the whole way a teacher teaches. Yes. And that's really challenging and does require enormous amounts of training. Whereas if you've got something where you're saying, okay, the teacher can carry on teaching the way they are, or you know, you can carry on structuring your class from the way it is. And here is something that students can do independently, mm-hmm. either independently, independently at home on a device, or they can have time scheduled in school on a device. Yes. And they can do it for 10, 15, 20 minutes. And it's very straightforward and it doesn't require massive kind of behavior change. That for me feels like maybe it's more likely to succeed mm. than changing the way teaching happens, which we know obviously it's important, but it's, we know it's not easy as well. And so I quite like the kind of apps that are ones that a student can use relatively independently. So I think for me, Anki's not been designed really for it isn't really designed for for schools but i'm kind of thinking what would be wrong with students having their own anki account with the teacher designing maybe certain flashcards that everybody can use and also older students having their own personal where they can add in things where they particularly feel it's important for them to remember so Anki is not something that, as I say, it's been designed for school use, but I, I can definitely see see it see it working. And the other thing I want to say is, look, I mentioned Anki because I like it, I use it, but the concept of the spatial repetition algorithm is not it's not Anki's invention. As I say, this is another one that goes back to the 1890s, effectively. <laughs> um, so a lot of apps are using this in one way or another, 
Um, there's a lot of different things out there that, that are using it. So Anki is kind of one application. I think it would be great if every kid had their own personal Anki account. I mean, I'm saying this, actually. Someone uh, DM'd me after I talked about it on Twitter and said, oh, my IT person tried to download it and it's got a load of Trojan horse viruses in it. So <laughs> I'm going out here saying, you know, Anki's amazing and I'm going to, like, you know, poison all these schools' computers. Um, so that's what I'm keen to say. It isn't just about that. Like, um, I know there's schools that use Quizlet. And yes. now I've not had much experience with Quizlet, but I hear people I trust who say good things. Uh, th- there are lots of things out there using it. So it's not that I'm saying this is the, the only one to use. I think the idea of the really basic idea I want to get into is students regularly spending not a long, not a huge amount of time, but just regular time, 10 or 15 minutes a day focusing on revising with, with a space repetition algorithm. Yes. I think no, I, I... That is really powerful. The other thing I think is really powerful is one of the things, I don't know if you find this about Anki, one of the things I like about Anki is the way that when you're using it, the flashcards almost like by definition are just coming up in totally random orders. Yes, so It's definitely. all randomised. But what's really great about that is you get these really interesting uh, links in your mind <laughs> that often pop up from random things being thrown together. Mm. So I've heard, I've read a few blogs about how people use Anki and there's some people who say, I like to use it and have different decks. So I'll have a deck for, you know, what you were saying, US presidents, or I have a yes. deck for Bayes' theorem. I have a deck for, um, you know, great characters in English literature, whatever. But actually, I I started out doing that, and I've gone down a completely different route, which is to bung everything in one deck. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. And that was someone I read. I read a really good article about how, how, um, how to use it, and they said they'd gone down that route, and it really appealed to me. And the really great thing about it is you do just get these random clashes of, of stuff. <laughs> but actually, that's a good thing because a part of what you want to be able to do by remembering something is apply it in different contexts. Yes. And so I do have this weird feeling when I will jump from, I don't know, um, yeah, you know, Bayes' theorem to, um, uh, you know, something about, 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 you know, the Odyssey or whatever, <laughs> that you do feel your mind, the gears are like crunching <laughs> as you're going from one one thing to another. And it does feel a bit wrong. You're like, oh, I was in one mode and now I've got to switch to another. <laughs> it would be much easier to just have to think about one thing. Mm. But that's one of those things where the easiness is not a good easiness. You know, I think this is one where the, the, it's a good it's a desirable difficulty. And I like the fact that you're just having to pull things out of, of, of completely different kind of parts of your of your mind. So that's how I use it. And give it a go Craig you give it a go and then come back to me and tell me I'm gonna I'm, I'm, I'm gonna you're right no, because that, that's one of the theories isn't it of why interleaving works it's this constant rebooting and again it makes yeah. perfect sense yeah. if, if anything could be happening and you're having to access different memories all the time yeah that, that's fascinating and um, I just wanted to make the point Daisy so um when I when I do work with with teachers and schools one of the things I talk about is that um Retrieval is obviously scheduling opportunities for students to retrieve prior learned content is one is is, is one of, if not yeah. the keys to, to, to yeah. learning and retention and so on. But one of the difficulties that, that teachers have with this is this scheduling in these op- these opportunities because it's it's yeah. it's a real hassle, isn't it? So you've you've, yeah. you've just taught something. Yes. So you're thinking, right, am I going to retrieve that? tomorrow and then yeah. i'm probably going to do it three days later then i'm going to yeah. leave it two weeks then three months but then what happens if somebody gets it wrong and 
and when I do it two weeks later, do I then have to bubble it up quicker and so on and yeah. so forth? So the good news is that things like Anki and stuff essentially take care of that. But the bad news, I guess, is that you lose this, and I, I, this may not may not be a bad thing, but you lose this essentially kind of teacher control over it, where you've got all the class studying the same problem so that then you can have a you can more quickly pick up on misconceptions mistakes kids are making you can you can orchestrate whole class discussions about it there's there's something that doesn't quite feel right to me of of kids kind of doing this all individually on their own versus the benefits of, of of everybody working on the same thing but as soon as everybody's working on the same thing it inevitably comes a compromise because com- some kids don't need to be working on that just now some kids need to be working on other things and so on do you, do you see that there is a bit of a, a conflict here that some kind of whole class use of spacing would be good but it's never going to be as effective as, as individual um, application of it so I, th- I think the conflict you talk about here is is, is, is absolutely a conflict that's at the heart of of, of a lot of ed tech I agree with that because the promise of EdTech is personalization mm. and the great challenge is, well, how do you get that personalization to exist within a whole class setup? And, yes, and I talk exactly. about this uh, kind of more obliquely throughout the book. It, it is kind of the central challenge because there are, we, we know that obviously if every student could have one-to-one tuition with a highly qualified tutor, <laughs> that would be incredible. <laughs> and when you go one to 30, however gifted and brilliant that teacher is and how the diligent hardworking children are, it just all does get more difficult. So the, the dream of education is, of, of te- sorry, education technology is that in the same way you've got your personalised uh, Spotify playlist and the same way that you've got your Netflix recommendation, the same way you've got your Facebook news feed, mm. the dream of education technology is, well, children will have their own, and in the US they really do call them playbooks, they'll have their own learning playbook or playlist. <laughs> Uh, their learning playlist and it will have everything in it tailored to exactly their understanding now i'm skeptical like that for a couple of reasons but one is most of the organizations that are implementing this playlist approach are doing it on the base of the learning styles so that's so if you're basing it on that so it's a problem but even, even if you were basing it on more robust science and you were doing the kind of space repetition we're talking about yeah, I think there is a challenge. Are you then saying, well, then we've just got children sitting at computers all the time and, and surely we don't want that for everything. Uh, and then you've also got the challenge of then people, have, a lot of people agree with that. And they'll say, well, we need a split. You know, you need the teacher teaching part of the mm. time and then the kid can go off to their playlist. And a lot of approaches that have gone down that route have had equal problems, because, as you just said, then what is the teacher doing in the class? And if the kids are going off and having these completely personalized things, like how does the teacher know what are they supposed to be doing? Yes. yes. So the the thing where I've ended up with is for me, both for pragmatics and for for ethics and for the the state of where we are now in in the world. I feel like what you want is having classrooms, teachers teaching the way they are at the minute. And they're teaching with a curriculum and a syllabus the way they are at the minute. And we're doing everything we can to try and get that to be as good as possible. But within the the, the constraints of what we do at the minute, if that makes sense. Mm. And then my idea is what you're putting into the space repetition algorithm, what you're putting into the the, the kids flashcards is stuff you've taught in class and that you've covered and you've done and they've had an opportunity to master in class. And kind of what the space repetition is doing is it isn't really you're putting it in once they understand it. And you're putting it in to lock down the memorization. Mm. So for me, yes, it's not it's not teaching them the stuff. You're teaching them the stuff. You're getting to that point, that first initial hurdle of what the hell is a simultaneous equation. 
and then what you're doing with the, the the flashcard app is you're making sure that because it's coming back and reminding them of the uh, spaced intervals, they're not going to forget it. So that when you come to do whatever else you're coming to do in a couple of months time and you mention simultaneous equations, they're not all going, uh, what was that? Yes. So for me, that's the way I see it being used. And that's where I see the value being. And that interestingly is similar to the way I use it in my own life is that I put in stuff I know already. I'm not putting in stuff that or, or, or you know, it's like that base for thing. Like when, when I say, you know, I've read it, I understand it. I'm putting it in so I can maintain and hold and deepen that understanding over time if that makes sense mm. so I, the, 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 and kind of the, the, the dream I've, I've got is what would be the best way to kind of teach have you been to one of oliver i'm sure you've been to one of oliver caviglioli sessions at a i have session? yes you've yeah, been to I the have. corsica one no i don't think so no so he does it, oliver does this great session where he teaches you about corsica the history of corsica using all of the principles of dual coding and he gets you to trace out a little map of it and you listen to him explain it and you copy and then you pause and you turn your notes down and you talk to you talk to your partner about it and you have to explain it. And it's phenomenal in that you do this for 20, 30 minutes and you feel like, you know, Corsica and it's amazing. <laughs> um, and then I think and I think that is brilliant. And I've still got a really good memory of a lot of the things he talked about. And this was sort of six, six months ago, the one I'm talking about. And then I think what would be even better is then you take all of those things and you put them into an Anki flashcard yes and then you're just reinforcing it and every time you look at the flashcard, you're going oh yeah that was that oliver session of course i remember that i remember what was it you know about the, the chestnut trees or whatever you know <laughs> um <laughs> that would be for me the 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 dream way of doing this that you would have lessons that introduce material and explain it like oliver's lessons and then you would follow up with everything going into a flashcard deck and, and then you, you wouldn't get the issues you've talked about of kids then having to almost have loads of different lessons. You could have people following the same syllabus and the teach teaching in the way that happens at the minute. And you've just got the flashcard at work in the background. I, th I think I think I'm on the verge of being sold on this stream. Basically. <laughs> just just a, a couple of questions um, like. I, I, one of the many things I like about you is you love a bit of maths as well, particularly, particularly yeah. stats. Um, yeah. do you, can you see this working in terms of maths in the sense that let's imagine I've just taught simultaneous equations. Yeah. Is it a case of simply I add to the deck, my, my kids class deck that night, yeah. let's say, for example, four simple simultaneous equation problems, three tricky ones and three mm -hmm. contextual ones, just bang them in there yeah. and then they'll kind of bubble up at the same time. Or do I, does it need to be a bit more sophisticated than yeah, that? Yeah. In terms of maths, can it just be yeah. questions, I guess, I'm I think asking? In your dream for maths, you probably wouldn't want, it probably isn't Anki. It's probably a, 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 an item bank with hundreds of thousands of questions. Yeah. So yes. that every time the question is a new one. Yes. So actually what the dream with maths would be, you've got a bank of 100,000 questions on simultaneous equations, right? Yes, yes. And the, the space repetition algorithm is exactly the same space repetition algorithm as you've got in Anki. But instead of saying, I'm going to give you these three exact flashcards, it's saying, I'm going to give you three tricky simultaneous equation questions that will be drawn from one of these 10,000 or three yes, of these 10,000. Yes. And then I'll give you three easy ones and they will be drawn from the pool of the 10,000 easy ones. And then I'll give you three medium ones, whatever it was, or three that are in mm. context. But those are being drawn from the wider pool of 10,000. So I think the dream and the dream for maths would be banks of questions and the space repetition algorithm pulls from them. And for, to be honest, with my Bayes example, it would be better for me if it was that as well.
so it's just that I'm using Anki. I don't have access to a pool of them. So I've just put in a few and it's, it's, it's doing the job for me. But I think, yeah, the, the better approach would be drawing from a bank of them. Um, so they're always refreshing and they're getting new new examples. And what's the closest you've seen to your dream, Daisy, whether it's in maths or in other subjects? And again, feel free to either name things or if you're not comfortable naming, that's absolutely fine. But have, have you seen things that are close to this? So I think obviously the, the, the very famous one, which, uh, you know, has done a lot of, of, of pioneering of a lot of these techniques is Duolingo. Mm, um, yes. and, and, and Duolingo, some of the academic papers they've published on their algorithm are fascinating. Um, now, a lot of these algorithms, they kind of all share a kind of ancestor and various people have taken them off in different ways and tweaked them. And Duolingo have come up with some interesting ways of tweaking things based on the enormous data set they have of you know, millions of language learners. I think hundreds of millions of users they've got. The fascinating thing they've been able to understand, too, is what are the words that English language learners of French, for example, find most difficult? What are the le- le- what are the words that when French language learners are learning? english they find most difficult and that kind of thing is fascinating too because then you're not just uh, you aren't just making it easier for people to learn you're actually uncovering some of the the the, you know the challenges of a subject Mm. you're actually uncovering some of the things that are that are are difficult about about learning so you can almost end up almost designing designing better courses so as i think think duolingo have have done a lot there as 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 one of the, the first and the biggest in this area um so you know that's one look i talk about a lot of others in the book i don't just want to say 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 duolingo there's there's a lot of examples of 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 those in the book i also say that the probably the best examples you have in specific subjects tend to be foreign languages and maths Mm. and the reason for that is those are the subjects where there's probably most agreement um and kind of least controversy about what it is you're teaching what the content is what order it should go in and you know the fewest options uh like so for example with english literature even if you get everybody to agree we should teach a shakespeare play well there's 37 shakespeare plays yes Uh, yes. and there might be a dozen that are all actually fine you know they would all serve your purposes and then it does just really in that sense come down to like personal preference which is fine but for somebody who's developing an edtech platform it's a problem (laughs) (laughs) because what they want is everybody doing the same thing so they can get enormous amounts of data and then keep refining and maths and foreign languages lend themselves beautifully to that and that's why you've had real you know insights and developments um so as i say duolingo for foreign languages uh, memrise is 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 one i talk about that also do foreign languages um, they have some 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 really nice stuff there. I I, I really like that. And then, then for maths, there are lots of different things doing different things. Obviously, you know, diagnostic questions. Obviously, not nice blog, Daisy. Tether on its um, way to you there. Nice. So Bruno Reddy, Time Saver Rockstars. Yes, that's, that's very good. Um, there's one a Madrid-based organisation, Smartic. Uh, they do a kind of a maths program for four to fourteen-year-olds. You know, lots of really good things uh, about that. Um, and yeah, so there's, there's, you know, there's, um, there's Uplearn, you know, I think you've interviewed Chris Bolton, yes. you know, there's, there's lots of people out there and there's lots of things out there where, where they're doing that. The other thing I distinguish between the book is I distinguish between um, applications where the content is done for you, like mm-hmm. all the ones I've just mentioned. Yes. And then there's applications where essentially it's really just a space repetition algorithm and it's up to you to plug in what you want. And that would obviously Anki is a really good example of that. So Anki does have some pre-made decks. But I get the impression most people who use it, they're putting their own things into it. Yes. yes. Um, and there's a lot of systems like that. Um, 
there's uh, one that's kind of designed a bit for kind of universities and, and big organizations in the US called Serago, which has got, a, you know, a lot of um, it doesn't kind of give you the content, but it's designed for if you've got a curriculum and you've got a content, you've got content, you can plug it into that and it will sort it out in a way that will be, you know, will do the space repetition. And I debate in the book, like, what's better? You know, is it mm. better to have something where all the content is pre-made? Or is it better to have something where uh, all the, the content you're creating yourself? Now, I think there's you can see pros and cons on either side. And it all depends on your context, on your capacity, on what exactly it is you're trying to achieve. Right. So I wouldn't want to say one is better or worse. I feel yes. like if you are a school and you have spent the last three years dedicating yourself to coming up with a fantastic curriculum that's got lots of really incredible questions in it. You don't want to go all in on something where there's pre-made content that's really mm, different. Yes. But on the other hand, if you're in a situation where you, you maybe don't have that content, maybe it is worthwhile looking at, at what is out there. Um, there's also the debate that getting the kids to write their own content helps them learn it. Mm. I think that's true. I think it's probably also that you still need to quality assure what they've done. Yes. And it maybe is more suitable for older students. So I think that's like I would say for myself, writing cards myself writing really good cards you know is 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 a skill and you get better as you do it but it's got i think there's there's principles you need to be following so i'm not sure you'd want like seven year olds to be to be doing that um but you know there's 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 other ways in which uh yeah obviously having having pre having stuff that doesn't have have to have you follow through a certain a certain pre-made content it can make it easier for you to just pick up and use it in a in a in a fairly easy straightforward way so I say at the end of the book, I give like a, a, a chart where I look at the ways you can you can use a lot of these things. And, and, and there are different ways. And it's up to you in your context to choose what's right for you. Fascinating. Fascinating this, Daisy. And a couple more questions just on this. <laughs> I remember when I when I saw you last, I think it was, it was up in Scotland before a, a research head that we were both speaking about, um, at. And we were both just by coincidence. I think we were both reading the same book at the time. And it was yeah. that um, that bad blood book if you remember oh, yeah. that about yeah about that elizabeth about holmes that, yeah. that that crazy yeah. ceo now one thing i mean it's absolutely brilliant book, but one thing that really struck me about that is just the amount of buzzwords that are involved in mm. the world of technology just generally now you must have come across this in doing your research and um, i'm i'm obviously involved a little bit in the world of ed tech myself and you hear personalized learning we've already spoken mm. about adaptive learning platforms the big one ai that's been chucked at everything <laughs> left right and center um what, what what was your experience kind of in countering these terms and are they my my instinct is they are being applied in completely different ways by different people they've got such different meanings attached to them it was was that your your impression when when you were doing your research for the book yeah absolutely and i think the problem you've got is that um education loves the buzzword technology loves the buzzword <laughs> so you bring them together in ed tech and you're in buzzword heaven or hell <laughs> so um you know personalized learning right so even non-tech the definitions of personalized learning are all over the place and i found this great select committee report from 2008 where the chairman of the select committee said something like they'd, they'd interviewed 67 head teachers about what they thought personalized learning was and they got 68 different definitions <laughs> uh you know and, and this is this is not even involving at this stage any technology yeah um so in the chapter on personalized learning in my book you know i say that i also say i look at three very distinct definitions of it that mean three completely different things. Mm, yes. And so this is the problem. People hear a buzzword and they have an emotional reaction or a feeling that they like or dislike that buzzword. And then that 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 that, that that's how they judge the concept. 
when in actual fact there could be so many different things going on underneath that buzzword. And in the case of personalised learning, I just look at three definitions of it, two of which I think are quite dangerous and one of which I think is brilliant. And there's your problem. When somebody yes. talks about personalised learning, how do you know what they're talking about? Um, what, what will so, be a dangerous one, Daisy? You can't leave us on that well, teaser learning there. Style, learning styles. Right, yes, yes. <laughs> but also yes. the other one, student choice. So yeah. personalised learning just so often gets defined as students choosing what to study, when to study, how to study it. Yes. And actually there's, there's, there's big issues with that. Um, you know, the, the Dunning-Kruger effect, the stuff about you don't know what you don't know. Yes. So when you look at when you look at that, um, you realise that, that, yeah, you know, student choice sounds very nice and it sounds like, oh, isn't that what personalisation is? Mm. But actually, um, personalisation, you know, that kind of personalisation, there's all kinds of research about sometimes we're not the best judges. You know, we do have yes. biases. Um, and I compare it. I talk about personalised healthcare. Personalised healthcare doesn't mean you're operating on yourself, <laughs> right? Um, Personalised healthcare is all about really, really rich data sources being used to give an idea of what the the best kind of um, the best kind of healthcare treatment will be for you. Yes. And I tell you, I've just realised I told you there's work going on uh, on the house next to us. You might be hearing a bit of noise. Oh, that's fine. All adds <laughs> to, to like, the drama. Shall I move? Oh no, he's fine, Daisy. No, all okay? adds, all tell, adds tell to the atmosphere. Not at all. <laughs> um, can I can I ask you, Daisy? Um, I I can't I can't um, let you go before we just mention a little bit about my favourite one, which is AI. And honestly, yes. the amount of time I've heard this being mentioned by, by teachers, by investors, by people, again in writing in op eds as we've spoke about, they love chucking a bit of AI um, into the mix. What's been your experience researching this book in terms of AI in particular? Yeah, great, great question. So I am genuinely fascinated by AI. Uh, I read a lot about the history of AI for this book. The w one one little nugget of history, which I think you'll appreciate, a bit of a historical irony, is that in the kind of, I think in the sort of 60s, 70s, 80s, you get what's called the AI winter. All right. So AI launches in the 50s to enormous fanfare, uh, a bit like we talk about AI today, like everyone thinks it's going to change the world. And there's lots of money being thrown into it. And then, so that's like in the in the 50s. And in the 60s, there's, there's all this hype. And then kind of, you know, late 60s, early 70s, everyone's like, oh, it's not really working, is it? <laughs> and you get this AI winter where funding for it drops off. Wow. And then what's fascinating is in the 80s and 90s, people are developing AI programs and they don't want to call them AI because AI has got <laughs> such a bad reputation. So they're developing programs which genuinely are AI and kind of pretending they're not. <laughs> uh, whereas whereas now like everything's obviously completely it's flipped on its head isn't it now like whatever you're doing whether it's ai or not everyone wants to slap the label ai on it and you've got these really interesting examples you know not in education but of um these apps which uh actually have humans behind them <laughs> yes <laughs> they're pretending yes. they're ai <laughs> you know because that's that's so cool um so it's funny how the fashions the intellectual fashions like um rise and fall and actually i think it would you know does does all well to remember that because AI is certainly in the ascendancy at the minute and is very fashionable, but it's not, you don't have to go that far to, to see it where that was very different. Um, look, I, I do think there's a, a lot of, um, look, AI is incredible. I, I read a lot when I was writing this book about AlphaZero, which is the machine that's um, the, kind of the chess world champion mm. that's come up with a new way of, 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 of playing chess. Um, there are incredible things going on with it. It's, it's, it's really amazing. It has become, though, a buzzword. Another one, another concept that's similar, actually, you don't get it so much in education, but it's similar, is the blockchain. The blockchain yes, is, is yes. an amazing piece of technology. It's I mean, I don't have a bloody clue what that is about. Yeah, yeah. 
Yep. Well, you know, it is. It is. I think it is. I don't not pretend to you know fully understand it, but my understanding is the, the thing I want to say about AI and the blockchain is they're not they're not fads in the way that 21st century skills are. Mm. Uh, they're, they're real things that are impressive, but they've become so fashionable that people just want to slap the label on anything. Yes. Uh, so there are really amazing things about AI and the blockchain. It's just got to a minute. Um, it's got to a moment where we are now that you start to see it and you just roll your eyes <laughs> <laughs> because it feels like, oh, it's going to be another one of, of, of these fads. And, I feel that a minute with 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 a little bit with, with essays, but as I say, I I, I want to be careful because they are they're not like 21st century skills. There is something obviously brilliant about them, and in terms of the AI, I spend the whole chapter talking about the AI marking of essays. Yes. Now people often think comparative judgment uses AI, and 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 if we were probably fully getting on board with the marketing, you know, we could probably say, <laughs> yeah, that's it, AI blockchain. <laughs> that's what we do. <laughs> AI and the blockchain are essays. <laughs> we don't use AI. And actually, for what we do, we're really, the fact we don't use AI is actually like a really big thing for us because we use human judgment. And I'm always really keen to stress that to people. I'm like, we don't use artificial intelligence. We use human intelligence. It's human judgment at the heart of this. But we just take the human judgments, lots of them. And the, the algorithm is crunching all of the human judgments. But the algorithm isn't replacing the human judgments. It's just kind of calculating them. Yes. Right. So we don't use AI. What is really fascinating is Ofqual have just, and this was after I published my book, but Ofqual have just announced that they are going to be posting a competition, I believe on Kaggle, for the AI marking of essays. Wow. Um, and this is the kind of thing that is serious. You know, it's not just a, a slapping the label on. And there have been attempts to come up with machine marking of essays in the past. They've nearly all founded. They're all founded. And generally, the problem seems to be is that whatever kind of algorithm people have come up with in the past, it tends to be um, tends to end up rewarding length. Mm. And and actually, this is kind of this really goes to the heart of the problems of machine learning, AI, not just in education, but everywhere, which is what AI tends to do is spot correlations. Yes, it isn't spotting the causation. Mm. So if the problem is, if you spot a correlation, in a lot of walks of life, that's fine. If you spotted a correlation, it will tell you something useful. But in systems where people depend on the feedback, that's a problem. So if you're marking essays, you know what? If you run a correlation on essays, the longer ones, they aren't invariably better, but they do tend to be better. So that's why the machine learning is picking up on length. Yes. But if you then say, right, we're going to mark the essays with this algorithm, if it's just, you know, length is a huge issue, the way to game it is to just write reams. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and that's what happens with um, that's what's happened. There was a, the, one of the papers I saw is uh, someone in trying to game a, 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 an, an AI marking uh, essay algorithm um, wrote the same paragraph 37 times. Wow. And that was that fooled the, the, the algorithm. So these are the problems with using AI in that specific context of marking essays. And I would say more broadly, I feel like people don't think enough about those i think as i say not only is ai just being used as a, as a label that goes and everything but people don't think seriously about what it is that ai does and 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 how you stop the gaming and how you embed it in a system where it is working with humans or judging humans um so i feel in all of the the hype around it some of those really important questions often often get lost but again i would never want to say ai is is is, is a fad it, it isn't a fad you know it's obviously a really serious thing and a really um 
you know, there's really incredible research going on out there. Fascinating. And um, one more question about your book, Daisy, and then just a couple, couple to wrap up. Um, yeah. I, I want to talk about equity, because um, um, this is obviously a big issue when yeah. it comes to it comes to technology, students having access. And the, what really got me thinking about this is I, I was lucky enough to visit Dubai a few months ago to, to run some workshops over there. Mm-hmm. And honestly, Daisy, I've never seen anything like it in my life. So the maths department, they all had iPad Pros and MacBooks. It was all Apple TV in terms of the classroom. And the lessons were absolutely ridiculous because the teacher was able to do all the worked examples just from anywhere in the class, just writing on the on the on the iPad Pro. If she saw something interesting in the class, she could just bring a tablet over and turn on like the camera mode. Straight away that appeared on the board. And if there was any notes she wanted the um, the kids to have records of, she just took a screenshot, press one button and that was all uploaded to their cloud accounts and they could access it. And then for me, one of the most powerful things I saw was that um, when when they were marking homeworks, what they did, it was just tick cross. But she, let's say it was a 10 question homework. The teacher recorded essentially 10 short videos doing work solutions to each of the homework questions. Took, took no time whatsoever for the teacher, you know, like 15, 20 minutes or whatever. But then the kids had a personalized kind of feedback thing where if they were stuck on question seven, they'll watch this video on how to do that exact question and then be given up a follow up question and so on. And I just remember thinking like, some of the kids in the UK and some of the like inner city schools and stuff, they don't stand a chance against these students because that for me was technology and ed tech being used incredibly well, incredibly powerfully. But the vast majority of kids just simply don't have access to this. So is, is this a concern, equity? And is it, are there any solutions? Well, I mean, it's interesting you say you think that's a concern because actually I'd argue that's the area where technology actually is, is the answer. Oh, yeah. No, I agree. I, I agree that the, the issue is if, if you'd said you'd been to Dubai and you'd seen um, in the pre-technology era and mm. you'd seen 20 teachers who were the best teachers you'd ever seen in your life. Yes. And you would said, I'm now going to come. I go back to the UK and I think, oh, my goodness, you know, these teachers uh, are not teaching in the UK and they're not teaching in these disadvantaged areas in the UK. How yes. can any of these kids compete? Because these 20 teachers in Dubai are the best teachers I've ever seen. If you yes. said that to me, I'd say, my God, that is a problem. Because you can't clone those teachers. Yes. What you're saying to me, that, that the reason why people are so keen on technology and, and why what I think is the best argument for technology is the argument for technology over history is that it's it's good at scale. Mm. It's good at scaling up. So if you've said to me you've seen a really effective method of teaching using technology, uh, my response is, well, why can't we just use exactly that here? Like if, if what was happening there was so brilliant. And obviously that's the whole point. That's the whole thesis plan, isn't it? The Khan Academy. You know, yes. here's, here's Salman Khan. He's a really gifted explainer, gifted teacher. Oh, oh. wait, hang on. Every kid in the world can watch his videos yes. uh, for free. Um, and he can then spend time honing and crafting them more than any one individual teacher can to make them better and better and better. So the, the promise of technology is yeah. that actually it allows that scale. And 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 it's removing uh, some of those inequities you have when you, you, you are only dependent on a human being who can only reach a certain number of people. And the, the thing I talk about in my books, I talk about, you know, the printing press. Before you have the printing press, most people don't have books. Mm. Uh, when you get the printing press, suddenly books become more accessible and you're in a situation where it's, it's possible for people, you're in a situation where you are today, where it's possible for people to have books because you're not relying on the labour of one one person to, to, to write them all out. So I feel like that side of things, I feel that's where technology is the answer. Technology is the ability to, you know, take some of these incredible things and, 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 and make them more accessible to large numbers. For me, the challenge is, is that in the past, everyone's just thought, well, that just involves videos. 
Right. And that's I open the book with a quotation from Edison where he says, hey, listen, in 10 years time, everything in education will be done through the motion picture. <laughs> and he says that in 1913. So I think the problem is we're still stuck in a little bit of that mindset. And, and I think we're stuck in thinking, hey, it's all about videos. If we get a video of someone explaining something really well, that's the answer. Now, I think videos of people explaining things well are really important. But I think that actually the things I've talked about with that, that, that what that's doing is kind of the initial bit of understanding. Yes, yes. The, the, the thing I'm talking about is the questions, the adaptive algorithms, the prompts, um, the, 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 uh, the diagnosing the individual misconception and prescribing the best path to solve it. Those are things which are not being done. It can't be done by video. And traditionally we would have said they can only be done by teacher. And now you are seeing ways with these algorithms where you can perhaps start to help with some of those those aspects. So I'm not worried about that digital divide in that sense. The digital divide, I'm, I'm not also not worried about a digital divide in terms of um, students not uh, not having access to devices, just because when you read the stats on this, it's astonishing. There's never been um, it's, it's, it's incredible the percentages of students who have access to a device, uh, both at home and in school. But if there is a digital divide I'm worried about, it's something very different. I think it's become a big thing over the next 10 to 15 years. The digital divide I'm worried about is a divide between students who can afford to access educational programs, but indeed all kinds of uh, online services which are which don't have advertising. Oh, and, really? And students who can't afford that or schools as well who can't afford it. Because in chapter five of my book, I talk about attention. And I talk about mm. how attention is the currency of learning. But I also talk about the fact that attention is the currency of the modern Internet economy. So big companies like Facebook and Google, they give their products away for free. But mm. obviously, there's that saying, if the product's free, you're the product. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. when you're using Facebook, using Google services, the way that you're funding it is with your attention. Uh, people often will say, oh, it's their data. They want your data. Actually, obviously, the, the data is really important. I'm not downplaying that as an issue. But often the reason they want your data is so that they can target it more effectively to get your attention. Wow. Um, so the fact that you have modern phones, modern devices that are really designed to, you know, the push notifications, the red buttons that are about the notifications, uh, the swipe to refresh. There's all these aspects of modern devices that are designed to just uh, distract you, to keep you hooked. Uh, to present you with kind of more sensationalist content. And that's because so many of these apps, their funding model is advertising. Whereas when the funding model isn't advertising, but it's subscription, like you're paying, you're paying for it. Then suddenly the incentives change and the incentive for the designer isn't to get you to spend as much time as possible on the app. The incentive is more about actually designing something that's going to help you fulfill what your longer term goals are. And I think you can see this really clearly in a wider kind of uh, Internet economy sense with the Apple and Google, that Apple are going all in on a kind of play on privacy and they're going all in on the idea that they're not kind of selling your data or trying to grab your attention. Um, whereas Google, their devices are much cheaper. But then the idea is, well, is it because they're cheaper because, you know, their funding model is to get you into that Google ecosystem, to get your data, to get your attention, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's potentially uh, a, 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 a time where you'll see, you know, those premium premium products and premium services that some schools won't be able to afford them. And some schools will be saying, well, yeah, but we are going for the cheaper ad funded option because it's all we can afford. 
Uh, and I think that potentially is a new digital divide. You know, that potentially is, is problematic. And I don't think that's just about schools. I actually think there's big issues with that uh, globally with a, with a lot of services that are, are delivered on, on online. Well, that's absolutely fascinating, that Daisy. Um, fa- final kind of final big question, and then just a, a little one to wrap up. Now, when you came on the show nearly three years ago, I don't think I was quite the deep, conscientious interviewer that I obviously am, <laughs> am today. So I didn't, ha- I didn't have this question. So I wouldn't want you to dip out, um, having been on such a long time ago. Um, I wonder, and you may not have an answer to this, but I wonder if there's an example of something important that you've changed your mind about over the last couple of years, something that you once held dear that you now think you're not so sure about. Is anything? bring to mind there yeah yeah definitely so i've talked a bit in this podcast about uh, human judgment and statistics and i write in the book about human judgment and statistics and like the balance between them there's a paper i cite um by daniel kahneman and gary klein which is on exactly this issue so daniel kahneman is basically all about statistics and gary klein's mm-hmm. all about human judgment and they collaborate on a paper to try and work out like which you know where is statistics better where is human judgment better to try and work out some of the differences uh, and that's an issue I think about a lot. And broadly speaking, I am on the statistics side of, of that argument. And, and generally I am. But I would say an area in the last. But, but I do also think it is context specific. And that is the insight from the Kahneman and Klein paper, too, that you've got to think about the context. And I would say the area where I've probably you know, shifted my thinking a little bit in this area is to do with Ofsted. So when I wrote Seven Myths, I was quite critical of Ofsted. I was pretty critical in the book <laughs> um, and I was probably more critical behind the scenes. <laughs> And my general kind of thinking back then was, why do you need it? Uh, like, yes. what's the point? Like, you have exam results. If you've got exam results, you've got that data. That data is what what really matters. That's what we need to be looking at. Uh, my position's changed, actually, over the last couple of years. And it's changed as a result of writing Making Good Progress. And it's changed as a result of, of, of writing this book as well. I think what I realised when I was writing Making Good Progress, which is all about assessment, is that exam results, and this isn't just true of exam results, but it's true of a lot of data, uh, the, the way they're achieved is as important as as what they are. <laughs> and it's only when you've got some idea of how they're achieved that you can actually rely on them. And there's all when you look throughout history of examples where data goes wrong, <laughs> it's often because the people who are looking at the data are looking at it with no understanding of where it's coming from. Yes. Um, so if I pick like an extreme example, but, you know, the, the, the Vietnam War is a really good example that Robert McNamara who was one of the um, one of Lyndon Johnson's advisors at the time. You know, he'd come from the Ford Motor Company. He was a financial whiz kid. You know, he was uh, very, very good with numbers and he treated war like that, too. Um, but essentially, you know, you, 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 that's not you, 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 you didn't really have any understanding of the realities of the battlefield and what was going on. And then you get into all kinds of problems with that. And, and you can see that in lots of examples. There's lots of examples of you know where the data goes wrong. It's because people aren't aware of what's being fed into it. And, and I think there is something interesting there. With, with, as I say, in my second book, Making Good Progress, I was talking about what are the factors that, you know, exams are only ever a, a sample of the bigger domain. You, you, in order for the exam results to be meaningful, you, they have to maintain that link with the wider domain. And, and, and the worry is when you focus too much on the, the exam, you actually break that link. And again, this is not something that just happens in, in, in assessment. There's a term for it. There's a term for it in the social sciences, Campbell's Law. There's an, exactly the same thing in the, in the, in the UK, a, ter- a term for it, which is called Goodhart's Law, which is the idea that when a measure becomes a target, it loses value as a measure. And I think, you know, everyone who was teaching under the 5A star to C system, we all know that, right? You were targeted just below that C boundary to get them over over the line that's the kind of thing Goodhart's talking about with with Goodhart's law 
And so I guess where I've kind of then become nuanced, more nuanced on Ofsted and have seen the role for it is that you, you need that element of human judgment in your system almost to guarantee, to safeguard the meaning, the, the, the meaning of your data. So it's not about, in, in some cases, it's not about, and I think all these things are context specific, but in some cases, it's not about human judgment versus statistics. It's about how do we use the human judgment so that we know the statistics we get are meaningful. So I think where I would have been really, you know, sceptical of the, just the very concept of an Ofsted maybe seven, eight years ago, I'm, I now really see the point of it. It's also helped the fact that I think Ofsted has reformed <laughs> yes. um, and is doing some sensible things. Whereas I think uh, when I wrote Seven Myths and was using lots of examples of Ofsted reports, I think that was not, not so much the case. Um, but, but even over and above that, I would say, you know, just my, my thinking on, on, on that, uh, that has changed. But um, obviously, I, I reserve the right to, to, for my thinking to change again in the future. Uh, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll ask you this question next time you're on, Daisy, yeah. in a couple of years' time. And we'll, yeah. we'll see. <laughs> and fi- final, final, final question. Yeah. Where next, Daisy? So you've got, mm. well, you've, you've got two best-selling books um, under, under, your, um, under your name already. You're about to have a third one. I've, I've no doubt about that whatsoever. Have, have you got an idea for a fourth? Could this be a world exclusive? What, 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 what are you? <laughs> you're going to be working on next what in, what excites you oh, well, I, have, I have no idea for fourth at the moment and at the moment very much the the, the next thing is about comparative judgment um about all those things i talked about uh, at the very beginning about how do we improve writing how do we um yeah how do we imp- improve writing how do we use these uh, immense insights we're getting how do we share those make them more widely available schools and and and, and, and really develop this as a method as i say not just of measuring writing but improving it so yeah i mean that's the that's the the near future for me and i'm really excited about it Fantastic. Well, Daisy Christodoulou, MBE, VAR queen. I mean, the, the list of titles is endless, but this has been an absolute pleasure as it always is talking to you. So thanks so much, Daisy. Brilliant. Cheers, Craig. So there you have it. There was my interview with the wonderful Daisy Christodoulou. I absolutely love speaking to or listening to to Daisy give one of her talks. She's so super smart, but she has this rare ability, as I said in the intro, to to convey quite complex ideas in a way that everybody can understand. And and I always come away with my head buzzing and having learned tons. Um, So there's a real danger that this takeaway section can really, really go on because I've got loads of things that I've, I've been thinking about since I recorded the conversation. But I'm going to take that lesson that I've been speaking about over the last few months um, that I learned from both Tom Frankham and Emma McRae that, that when giving feedback, the worst thing you can do in the world is chuck a load of different ideas because none of them stick. There's just too much. It's overwhelming. So I'm really trying to reduce my personal takeaways down to three or four absolute max um, to ensure that actually I act upon these. So so here come four. And I know four's pushing it a little bit, but hopefully, hopefully you'll forgive me. So the first is um, something we spoke about early in the conversation, this legacy of the whiteboard, legacy of the interactive whiteboard. And it was fascinating that that was certainly my first experience as a teacher with widespread um, ed tech, this, this, this new hardware appeared in classrooms. As, as Daisy said, um, I, I certainly as a student had never experienced being taught using these. And then in my NQT year, they were absolutely everywhere. And I, I wasn't aware of the cost at the time, but in today's climate and budget constraints, God almighty, thousands and thousands of pounds. Now, as Daisy said, um, there's definite positives to, to, to the whiteboards. Um, even if they were just used as glorified projectors, that 
that still meant that um, as, a, as a teacher, I could do things that I simply wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. I could show my students animations, uh, dynamic geometry software such as, such as Autograph was was still was around in in those days. I could do I could show my students things that just simply wouldn't be possible or would be a lot more difficult if I was either having to handwrite them on the board or get one of those um, transparencies and overhead projectors and so on. And particularly, as I say, for the the, the kind of software side of things, uh, for maths, dynamic geometry software, the statistics stuff, um, I found that incredibly powerful. Um, but I tell you what, the, the, there's two two kind of legacy issues from this. One I spoke about with Daisy, the fact that a lot of teachers have a negative experience with with these whiteboards they were simply they simply appeared in teachers classrooms with either no training or very very little training and, and teachers were essentially forced to use them um, I, I knew of lesson observations that were kind of guaranteed to be a bit of a disaster if you didn't use your interactive whiteboard but there's another legacy, and that is the fact that many of these boards are still there. And they're the exact same boards that were around when I first started teaching in, what, 2014, 2015? Um, now, as with any tech, particularly hardware, that, that's going to cause major, major issues. Um, and I, I've, I've watched many a lesson where the teacher, and I'm sure many teachers can, can relate to this, the teacher will start writing in one part of the board and the flipping text will start appearing somewhere else and because the alignment's so wrong. Um, or the, um, the the projector, the bulbs have gone so dim that, that if there's any kind of light in the room, you can't really read what's on the board. It's so faint and so on. Um, and that's a big, big issue, of course, and it's a really obvious point to make, but um, it's all well and good having this tech, but whether it's well particularly if it's hardware it has to be maintained in order to to keep its effectiveness going and it's at the stage now where i know lots of teachers and i'm one of these that if faced with an old clunky board that that doesn't work the kids can't see it and so on and um, versus no board whatsoever and just back to a, a non-interactive one but I, I choose the latter um, any day of the week and again it's really frustrating for these teachers because these boards take up so much space in the classroom and yet um, and, and there's simply no space for anything else and yet they're, they're not having anywhere near the effectiveness that, that, that they could have. Um, second thing I wanted to talk about was Anki. Now, I first came across Anki when I interviewed Oliver Lovell for, for my podcast. It's one of my favourite ever episodes. If you haven't checked that one out, it's, it's definitely worth listening to or even revisiting. Um, Ollie's a massive Anki user. I'll tell you what was really interesting. Uh, one of, in one of my podcasts, I can't remember which one it was, but I, I, I must have mentioned uh, the word Satsuma. And Ollie had never come across this. And he messaged me to say that Satsuma is now in his Anki deck so he, he can remind himself what, what that means. Um, if you get on top of something like that, it can it can be phenomenal. Well, I know lots of people who use Anki for um, for, for learning languages, um, or as I, as I mentioned with Daisy, it's very good for facts in in terms of dates and uh, capital cities and stuff in in geography. Um, I need to get better at using it for insights from books. So I I'm, I use Kindle a lot. Um, I'm a big big Kindle reader, and I tend to highlight notes um, in Kindle. It's very very good for that, and I'll I'll highlight a section of text and I'll type a note or a comment on it. But, and this is just stupid of me, I don't actually do anything with those highlights and comments. I just assume that I've kind of, well, I've highlighted it. So all of a sudden that, that I must remember that or something, but I, I don't put any effort into that. So it just disappears. Um, so I need to get better at doing that. And I'm sure you can export notes directly from Kindle um, into Anki or there'll be some some third party that, that makes that that simpler. Um, but I'm still not sure how to use it best for, for mathematics. As, as Chris Bolton says, maths consists of very, very, very few facts. 
this is why often knowledge organizers when used in mathematics aren't as effective as, as other subjects because maths isn't really about facts there are there are some and there are definitions and um, that are very very useful for, for students to know and if those definitions are illustrated with examples and non-examples i think it becomes a lot more powerful so there's definitely scope for using anki for something like that but in terms of of carrying out procedures and particularly problem solving i'm not so sure and as daisy said what's far more useful is is something like anki in terms of the the spaced algorithm that it's got in there but it can generate lots of different examples it can mark them for you and, and so on and so forth and i know i know lots of lots of um, attempts at this um bruno reddy uh, daisy mentioned uh, with times table rock stars um, has spaced algorithms built into it and um, i've not had a chance to play with it yet but colin hegarty um, from hegarty maths his memory um uh, feature of his is built built around a spaced algorithm so it's fascinating to look at this but i wonder if anybody out there listening to this has used anki successfully in terms of math so whether it's putting your own questions in there based on the lesson or whether it is using definitions and examples and non-examples i'd be fascinated to hear about it because the, the beauty of course of anki is it's free it's um it works on ios it works on android there's a web version it all syncs up dead dead nicely it's super easy to use um, so and it's incredibly powerful. It, it does the scheduling for the teachers, which is which, or for the students, which is the hardest bit about this. So, I'm very interested if if people, perhaps having listened to this episode, have a little play around and experiment. What does it work with, and what are its limitations? Third thing I wanted to speak about, um, and th this has really got me thinking hard about this. And Daisy was very clear on the point that that technology, the role of it is not to replace the teacher. And I absolutely love the distinction that Daisy made. And this has clarified a lot of things in my mind about where technology sits. So the role of the teacher, the way I see it, is to help get that information and knowledge in. And by in, I mean whether, whether we label this as into students' long-term memories or successfully processed in working memory, or we just label it as they understand what we're teaching them in the moment. That's the role of a good teacher. To, and technology can certainly help with that. It can help by assessing prerequisite knowledge, flagging up misconceptions, and I'll talk more about that when I talk about diagnostic questions in a second. But the role of the teacher supported by technology is to convey information as clearly as possible so students understand it and when i say supported by technology this is where things like dynamic geometry packages visualization and use of use of whiteboards and so on can can come into play but the teachers at the heart of that but I think the mistake that I've made for many, many years is, is that's where the emphasis has been in terms of my planning, in terms of my thinking, has been how to get the information in, how to get kids to understand it at the moment. And not enough of my effort or attention has been on ensuring it stays in there ensuring students can retain it, ensuring students can retrieve it at any given moment. And this is the most frustrating thing about teaching and learning is that, and both for teachers and students, is that kids can get something in the moment and you, you as a teacher think, wow, nailed that one, another cracking lesson there. And you keep having these good lessons after good lessons after good lessons. But then a week later, a month later, a year later, or whenever it is, it seems to have been gone when it appears on a, you know, in isolation or on a, on a worst case scenario, on a high stakes assessment, what kids could previously do easily, all of a sudden it's gone. And this, this is for me is, is the power of Bjork's work and Bjork's insight that, that every memory 
um, has a has two strengths, a retrieval strength and a storage strength. So how easy that memory is to access and how deeply embedded it is. And that crucially, every time we retrieve something from our memory, that, that memory gets a boost in terms of retrieval strength and storage strength. It becomes more deeply embedded and students are more likely to successfully retrieve it next time. And it's Bjork's major insight for me that, that testing isn't a neutral thing, that, that testing is a memory modifier. Every time students access a memory, that, the strength of that memory changes, it, it increases. And I've not put enough emphasis on that. I was very casual with my my retrieval things. It'd be like a starter here and there. It'd be a topic-based assessment, a topic-based homework and so on. And now I'm really, really careful to try and ensure that my students retrieve all aspects of things that they've been taught, both in recent weeks, recent months, but also years previously, because that's the only way to help them remember it. And here's where technology can come into play. The teacher does the job of helping it get in there, but technology can help students retrieve it. So whether that's using something like Anki or whether it is um, technology kind of flagging up to, to teachers, right now's a really good time for you to test students' understanding of perimeter of a, a circumference of a circle or of equation of a straight line graph or whether it is one of these space repetition algorithms built into something that schools already have like whether it be my maths Hegarty diagnostic questions or whatever that for me is the real power of technology it's to help things stay in the teacher gets it in there technology helps it stay in there and of course then that flags up um, um, issues that we talked about with Daisy where is where you've got do you don't want lessons where kids essentially are just glued to a screen all working on their own you want that kind of whole class dynamic you want that teacher bringing it together delving into misconceptions and so on but when students are outside of the classroom or maybe for kind of dedicated periods in there, it does make sense for students to essentially be, be studying the thing that's most appropriate and relevant for them, the thing that they need to practice, the thing that they need to retrieve. And that's not going to be the same for two students, let alone is it going to be the same for 25, 30 students. So that for me is the, is the real power of, of, of technology and that's personalized learning. Personalized learning isn't giving kids a choice. Well, what do you want to learn now? Personalized learning is, okay, you've all been taught something. In theory, you've all been taught the same things, but you've all grasped it at different depths. You've all, you've all got different weaknesses, different strengths. So now the personalization kicks in in terms of that retrieval process. Which brings me to the final thing, which is is diagnostic questions and ED. Um, now, again, the, one of one of the reasons, well, many reasons, I've been excited to speak to Daisy. As I say, I'm, I'm just fascinated. I always learn something. But also, um, over the last few years, I've obviously had firsthand experience of, of the wonderful world of edtech. And <laughs> Daisy's right; it is full of these buzzwords. If you go to something like BET and the the, the exhibition conference. You, I, I tell you what, if you, if you wanted to, to come away from there um, having drank too much, one, one way to do it is you could play a game where every time you see the phrase AI or personalized learning, you do a shot or something. I'll tell you what, you, you wouldn't last seven minutes. You'd be absolutely comatosed on the floor because every product is chatting AI, machine learning, personalized, all this kind of stuff. And as Daisy said, there's, it, it's, it's not a shared vocabulary. People have got so many different different interpretations of this. Um. So that's been fascinating for me to get an insight into, into the world of EdTech. But um, a Diagnostic Questions in ED, I, I think we try and do what, what Daisy's talking about here. We we certainly don't try and replace the teacher. I, I don't think that'll ever happen. I don't think that's that's a good thing to, to, to do. But what we try and do is come in both at the start and at the end. So we come in at the start. So be, before, before a teacher teaches a new idea to a class, 
um, if students have been answering questions on diagnostic questions or an ED, we've got a pretty good idea of where their strengths and weaknesses lie um, in terms of that prerequisite knowledge. So if you're about to teach a class how to add two fractions together, the kids need to know what a fraction is, how to simplify a fraction, how to find lowest common multiple, all these kind of things. And we can tell teachers that, but not only that, we can say, okay, this child doesn't quite understand lowest common multiple, and this is the nature of their specific misconception. You're not having to guess. It's not a case of this child understands 30%, whatever the hell that means, of this particular mathematical idea. Because of the nature of diagnostic questions, where each answer reveals a specific mistake or misconception, then if we, if, if we can inform teachers which students have chosen which answers, we give teachers that window into the nature of those misconceptions, which can hopefully help any intervention or support the teacher gives be a lot more effective. So that's where I think diagnostic questions and ED come into play at the start. And then the teacher teaches, um, using their experience, using the wonderful world of resources that are out there and so on. And then diagnostic questions and ED come in at the end in, in two, two ways. So the first is an immediate assessment. So after something's been taught, how much of it is in there? Now that for me, if, if you assess something immediately after it's been taught, perhaps a topic specific homework, perhaps even just like an, an in-class quiz or something, that's not a test of understanding. That's more a way of, of kind of checking to see if, if any misconceptions are there. It, has anything been missed? Has, it, it, to use Bjork's distinction, that's performance. Are kids performing well? Can they replicate what, what they've been doing in the lesson? Can, can, can they do it? Or are there any holes? Because if it's not in there to begin with, it's not going to stay in there. And if, it's, if there are problems initially, there are going to be problems long term. So that's that initial check. And if you use the schemes of work on ED, you'll know that as soon as students finish a topic, they're immediately given this, this mini assessment. But then it's what happens later. What's been retained? So then three weeks later, students are given another assessment, another quiz on that topic that they did three weeks previously. And what's fascinating there is if you compare the results, do kids do better or do they do worse than they did immediately after being taught? Sometimes they do better because kids have gone away and done some extra work on it. Sometimes they do worse and do worse is problematic because it suggests that, all right, it was in there in that moment, but now it's gone. They were performing, but they hadn't learned. And as we go further, we want to build more into this space repetition algorithm so students aren't just having these two opportunities to revisit it. It's constantly being drip fed into them that just like Anki, that it's flagging up that perhaps on their phone or whatever, right, you need to have a go at that. This, this is a really good time for you to have a go at this question, which will be different for another student in that same class. They'll need a different question at a different time and so on. So I'm super excited about that. I'm super excited. And I think... I think for me, that's the right balance of teacher and tech. It's the tech to support the teacher, but more specific than that, it's the tech to do the retaining bit. It's the tech to do the testing bit. And it's the teacher to help make sure that what is being tested is fairly secure in there in the first place. I hope that makes sense anyway. So to find out more about Diagnostic Questions or ED, just hop on to diagnosticquestions.com or ed.com um, and you'll find stuff there. Or drop one of our team um, a line at hello at ed.co.uk and I'll put links to all that in the show notes. But anyway, all that remains for me to do is once again thank Daisy Christodoulou. I hope it's not too long till she bangs out another book, just so I've got an excuse to, to, to get her back on the show. If you ever if you ever a research head or anything like that, go and watch her. Um, I'd say, um, this is a big, big claim, um, I'd say that Daisy and, and also Becky Allen are two of the people that I, I've never 
listen to them and not come away with my head buzzing with ideas or had something presented that I thought I knew about, but actually there's actually a completely different way of thinking about it. So if you ever have an opportunity to, to speak to, to see Daisy or Becky, and um, my advice would be to definitely go for it. Um, so thank you to Daisy for giving up her time. Um, her book is absolutely fantastic. Um, de definitely check that out and give it a read. And also No More Marking. Um, have a look at that. It's it's a wonderful tool. Um, thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And a huge thank you to, to you, my loyal listener, for keeping on listening to these episodes in your thousands. It's the reason I do them. As uh, The other reason, of course, is I get to speak to my heroes. But the main reason is people keep listening to, to, to these. Um, if you want to support the podcast, the three simplest ways you can do it first is rate or review the uh, uh, the podcast wherever you get it from whether it's itunes spotify or stitcher podbean wherever you get your podcast from if you can just give it a review and a rating that'd be fantastic um recommend an episode maybe it's this episode maybe you think i'll tell you what i know somebody who'd love to listen to this maybe they're an edtech skeptic maybe they're an edtech lover this could be the episode for them. Give them a recommendation. Say to set them up on it. If they don't know how to use a podcast, show them on their phone. Show them how to set it up so it's they can listen to it in their car or whilst they're doing their washing up. And the third way, and there's no obligation to do this, but if you enjoy these episodes and you want to help support the running cost of the podcast, then the, I have a Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash Mr. Barton Maths um, is where you can sign up to buy me a Mellow Birds a month. And thank you so much to all those people who've already done that. It means the world to me. Okay, um, so there's another episode. I'm super excited about what we've got coming up in the future on the podcast. Can't wait to share with you some of those guests. But for now, thanks so much for listening. You take care of yourselves and bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>